With great power comes great responsibility. Compromise where you can. Where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right. Even if the whole world is telling you to move. It is your duty to plant yourself like a tree. Look them in the eye and say no. You move. Never step onto the battlefield of ideas unprepared. Before you enter the fray, you need a plan. And there's no better place to get one than right here on Tactics with host Caleb Colquitt. The Situation Room goes live now on News Radio 1440. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you so much for joining our program. As always, I'm your host, Caleb Colquitt, and boy, do we have a big, big show tonight. So let's go ahead and get started. I know that coming on down the pipe, we have an interview with Matt Clark and also Robin Blessing, so we're going to get both legal analysis of the road decision as well as sort of an insight from somebody that's been on the front lines of this, that's actually been helping mothers choose life on this. And we also have uh, one of my favorite stories of the week. It's, it's quite the treat. The Washington Post, in an attempt to make the case for abortion and why it should remain legal, accidentally writes one of the most pro-life articles I've ever seen. So lots of stuff to get to today on the show. But man, it's time to celebrate. Praise the Lord, Roe is finally been completely overturned, Roe's been overturned, Casey's been overturned, the opinion that came out on Friday, I'm sure that at this point, I mean, it's the Monday after, it came out on a weekend, there wasn't a whole lot I could do. At this point, you already know all this, this is not news to you, but it just feels so good to live in a post-Roe world. You know, it's funny, the most viewed, most shared, most commented on, most liked, everything, it broke every record that I have for Tactics Radio was a picture I put out and it wasn't anything complicated. It wasn't like a, a super well thought out political point or anything. Really all it was, was just a picture of me tweeting and saying, um, you know, praise God, Rose finally over, rejoice and be thankful. It was just an expression of, of joy and glee coming on after that. And so uh, really th that's all that it is. I mean, it's, it's just an expression of being so incredibly grateful that God has has seen this happen. And there's a lot of people to thank. And I think that we need to be thankful. Uh, to be honest, I just did not think this was ever going to happen. I really didn't. And the reason that I am just sort of dazed and confused, I mean, I, I really am almost in a fog and it is so surreal to me. Because remember, I'm 33 years old and Roe was old when I was born. I mean, this is something that lasted 50 years. And I, I don't know what it's like to live in an America where abortion wasn't mandated down the throat of the states across all 50 states for everybody that they had to protect the right of a mother to kill her child. I, I don't I genuinely don't know what it's like to live in America without that until the past three days. And so it is really incredible that that's what wound up happening and. Um, when I say I didn't think that it would ever happen, that doesn't mean that I thought that abortion would never be gotten rid of. Because if you do recall, you may remember that I actually made the point on my show quite a while ago that 
I did think that America was eventually going to get rid of the demonic scourge that is abortion. I just genuinely thought we would have to legislate our ways out of our way out of it. You may recall that what happened, the way that we got to the Constitutional Amendment, the 13th Amendment, to abolish slavery, the way that we got there was we had a horrible Supreme Court case and eventually with, with Dred Scott, and then eventually we had a civil war, and then we had a constitutional amendment. Now, I wasn't predicting a civil war over abortion, although I wouldn't have been like absolutely stunned and said that would have never happened. I just didn't think that it was the more likely of the scenarios. But I did think that if we did eventually get rid of abortion, especially considering the, the trend lines and the way support of abortion was moving, I genuinely thought that the way that that was going is that it would eventually be outlawed, but that it was going to be outlawed through legislation, not outlawed through the courts. I genuinely didn't think that they would ever overturn Roe, uh, at least not the Supreme Court. I, I figured that it would have to be overturned by either legislation or some kind of constitutional amendment. Uh, but here we are. We are sitting here in the the post-Roe world, and it feels so great to say that. Um, got word actually today that right here in Montgomery, the abortion clinic that sits here uh, over on Perry, um, it's shut down. They permanently closed. That's the word that I've heard from somebody uh, earlier today that it actually has shut down because abortion was really all they did. And so now that evil, horrible place where so many innocent children saw the end of their life, it doesn't exist anymore. The a uh, metaphorical temple of Baal has been torn down in our city, and that is a good thing. So I'm really kind of beside myself on this. I can't believe that it actually happened the way that it did. I, I really am kind of taken aback, but I am absolutely thrilled that that is what happened. So I think that what this really all boils down to is that God is in control. And yes, he allowed evil to go on for a while. But as Thomas Jefferson said, God's justice does not sleep forever. Eventually, it comes back, and I'm glad that it happened in this way. I'm glad that we were able to make it, and it, there's a lot of people to thank. There's a lot of people that led to this, the, the timing and the situations that had to happen. If you've been paying close attention to this for a while, you understand how ridiculously fortunate we are to have this, especially when you read Justice Roberts' opinion, because technically speaking, this court decision is a 6-3, because Roberts did join the prevailing majority in saying that their judgment that the Mississippi law needs to be upheld is correct. However, if you read his opinion, he says, I believe that it is correct in judgment, but not in justification. I'm paraphrasing there a little bit, of course, but essentially what that means is he agreed that the Mississippi law ought to have been upheld. He just disagreed on how it was to be upheld, and so he did not join their opinion. So if you want to get technical, it's really more of a 5-1-3. And so we barely had enough justices to do that. And if there had been one more liberal justice or even maybe another like Justice Kennedy type, then what would have happened is we would have had either a prevailing opinion that was significantly weaker. So it upheld the Mississippi law, but on very narrow grounds. We've seen a lot of those decisions happen in the past few years, especially with Chief Justice Roberts. Uh, so, for example, the uh, the gay cake shop and that kind of thing, those those have been defended on grounds, but it's like basically the narrowest ground possible. So, well, we could see how this would be correct in a certain way, in a certain light, if it's done a certain way. And so in this one, no, it just comes out in the opening statement and says Roe is hereby overturned. So 
I mean, kudos to the Supreme Court. They're, of course, the the five justices that joined in that opinion are the ones that are the most to thank. I give no thanks to Chief Justice Roberts. Um, he is a feckless coward. And if there is anybody that deserves to get credit, it's not him. He was, if anything, a in opposition to it. It just so happened that there were five justices that refused to go along with his cowardice. So that's where we stand with Chief Justice Roberts. That's where we stand with the other justices. The five justices definitely deserve credit for joining in that. The Federalist Society, they deserve a lot of credit in bringing this legal victory because they're the ones that were supplying Republicans with lists of judges that had been vetted, that had met their standards, that had the correct uh, view not only on constitutional matters, but also uh, matters of life as well, and, and looking through their record and finding judges that would fit that bill to be nominated to the Supreme Court. And when I say that, I mean not only that it was important that they were good on this one issue, they have been researching and studying judges to see how they view the Constitution. And so this opinion is not just a win for the pro-life movement, even though it is. I actually do know they are few and far between. But I do know even some pro-choice libertarians or some pro-choice federalists that are actually glad about this. Uh, there was a commentator that I follow, um, Michael Malice, I think is his name. Uh, the dude is actually super pro-choice. He loves him some abortion. But he said that this decision was correct, that this should have been turned back over to the states. And so he may think that all of the states should make abortion legal, and so in his perfect world, all 50 of the states would have abortion as an option. Thank God that he's not running things. But, you know, he's an anarchist, so that would be kind of weird. But my point is, there are even some libertarians that care about the Constitution and care about the way that you win these legal battles that looked at this decision and said, yeah, this is a victory for everybody that cares about the Constitution, regardless of how you feel about abortion. And that's actually the case. This was never intended to be a federal matter. This has always been understood because when you're talking about police powers, the right to life, that kind of thing, that's always been understood to be a state power. And so because of that, that's where they landed. That was correct. Uh, we also have to thank the presidents and senators that got these justices on the bench. So the three Republican presidents each contributed to this in a way because if you look at Justice Alito, for example, that was somebody who was nominated by George W. Bush. He's the one who, of course, wrote the, the main opinion that is now accepted and, and was concurred by four other justices. You also have to look at Clarence Thomas, who was nominated by George H.W. Bush, George W.'s father. And, and this person deserves a big thanks. Three of the justices that concurred in this opinion, Donald J. Trump. Now, you may recall, and... I have never been this happy to admit that I'm wrong. I mean, I'm elated to admit that I was wrong about something. I had for months, you may recall, when President Trump was first running for office in 2016, I had uh, Laura Clark, who her husband's going to be on the show in a second. I really wish I had thought to bring this up to him, but I, I it slipped my mind. Um, Laura Clark, who was my co-host at the time, I had many, many, many people tell me, dude, we got to get Donald Trump elected because he's going to nominate justices that are going to overturn Roe. I said, nope, you're crazy. Um, I, I don't think that that's going to happen. You're living in a pipe dream if you believe that that's actually the case. 
And then, sure enough, dude gets elected, nominates three justices, and I said, you know what? You're still wrong. They're not going to overturn Roe. You're, you're living in a fantasy world. That's never going to happen. And even after, th this is how convinced I was of this, even after the decision leaked, and it turns out that Samuel Alito had written this opinion, I said, I guarantee you that's not going to be the majority opinion. It will be a concurring opinion to Chief Justice Roberts' opinion, which states that he will not be overturning Roe. I genuinely believed that that was what was going to happen. I didn't believe it even after it leaked. I was convinced what was going to happen is that somehow Chief Justice Roberts would find a way to screw this up. Uh, the man is a, he's a savant at being able to screw up Supreme Court decisions. He's, he's excellent at it. And yet, here we are. And I have to admit I was wrong. I was totally wrong. And I'm so glad to admit that. I could not be more thrilled to be wrong about something. And that is a weird thing for me to say because I hate being wrong. I love being right. But on this, to everybody from 2016 on that said that we needed to elect Donald Trump to, uh, you know, and I'm talking about this post-primary because that argument didn't hold water when there were several other candidates also on the ballot that could have wound up getting this decision. But afterward, you know, when they were saying, we got to vote for Trump, we got to elect Trump because he's going to get justices on the bench that are going to overturn Roe. I apologize to everybody that I told them they were wrong. I apologize to everybody I made fun of with that. I mean, maybe the joke was funny, but still I, I was wrong. I'm sorry. And I'm okay with that. I'm so happy that I was proven wrong. And I think that we also have to thank Harry Reid because of course, Harry Reid, who is the Senate majority leader for the Democrat party, he is the one that got rid of the rule that you had to have 60 senators vote to confirm because he basically got rid of the filibuster for court nominations. And so when he scaled that back and made it to just 50, that meant that we were able to get Trump's Supreme court justice nominations through. So thank you, Harry Reid, for that. You know, we couldn't have done it without you. Thank you so much, Senator Harry Reid and, and to his family. And also Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a big part of overturning Roe. And the reason that I say that is if she had not been so stubborn and held on to her seat, despite the fact that Barack Obama was going to be leaving office, they were convinced that Hillary was going to win anyway. And so why should Ruth Bader Ginsburg worry about going ahead and retiring? And she didn't. And obviously, I'm not glad that she died, but since she did pass, that gave Trump an opportunity to nominate uh, Amy Coney Barrett in her place. And so because of that, man, super lucky that Trump was able to get three nominations because that is how we wound up with the Supreme Court bench that we did uh, for this particular case. I do think we have to thank lawyers on both sides of the case because the lawyers that obviously were arguing that the Mississippi law ought to be upheld ought to be thanked. But also, we can thank the lawyers who were on the legal team to argue the case against the Mississippi law because they refused to give an inch. They made the point that you must not only overturn the law, but uphold Roe and Casey. And the only way to do that is to get rid of this Mississippi law and uphold that abortion is a right up until the point of viability. And so because they, they did not offer like an off-ramp, their arguments did not 
uh, focus on trying to get like a softer opinion because they they basically went for broke. Now we have an opinion that completely overturns Roe and Casey. And so thank you to them and thank you to the state of Mississippi. You know, people in Alabama tend to make fun of Mississippi from time to time, and it's just kind of a friendly rivalry. It's sort of a sibling thing because Mississippi and Alabama are very similar in a lot of ways. And so because of that, you know, we throw stones at Mississippi all the time, but dang it, props to Mississippi. You know, our law, our abortion ban is great because it actually bans abortion at all points. But Mississippi's law specifically crafted their law in such a way that they believe that it would be the one that would eventually wind up overturning Roe, and they were right. So props to Mississippi, props to their state legislature, props to their governor, who is actually a really good guy, and I really like him. And in fact, I like him better than than our governor, to be perfectly honest. Um, but yeah, so thank you to the state of Mississippi. The country owes you a debt of gratitude for your contribution to the fight to life. And also, I think just pro-life activists and organizations, whether you're talking about the March of Life, whether you're talking about um, Students for Life or the Susan B. Anthony list or the Human Defense Fund, um, I mean, we could name several of them. There's, I, I don't even, just off the top of my head, those are the ones that I can come up with. But I mean, I can sit here and just list for like 20 minutes all the different organizations that contributed to this, including, like I said, some of the legal teams like the Heritage Fund right here in Montgomery. We're going to talk to the president, Matt Clark, of the Alabama Center for Law and Liberty, who submitted an amicus brief, the Foundation for Moral Law right here in Montgomery, who did the same. Um, there's several different organizations from the legal side to the activist side uh, that we could cite here, and all of them deserve thanks. And just in general, for those that have been on the front lines of the fight for life, I want to say thank you because I wasn't around when Roe became the law of the land. And after that happened, it just would have been so easy to give up and throw your hands and go, well, we can't do anything. The Supreme Court has decided this. But the very first year you had organizations like March for Life and and other organizations that pushed for this and made sure that this was not going to be accepted in, this, in, in the United States of America. And thank God that they did, because it has been a long fight. And I know that a lot of you, there were days you probably felt like giving up. And thank you for continuing the good fight. It is appreciated by me. And so ultimately, I think we need to take a step back and realize that this is a huge win. And we do need to celebrate. We do need to give thanks. There are a, a myriad of reasons why this is a great decision and why this is a good day for those who care about the Constitution and, more importantly, care about the lives of innocent children. However, I think that it's important to bring up, too, this is not just a celebration. You know, D-Day was a big win for the United States. But the war wasn't over after D-Day. You look at other wars in American history. You know, it was a, a really big deal when Washington crossed the Delaware and got his first major victory against the Redcoats. But it wasn't until Yorktown that he actually won. Uh, in, in the Civil War, Gettysburg was a horrific battle, but a huge victory for the North. But it was several more months after that. Yes, it kind of broke the South's back, but that wasn't the end of the war. They had to follow through. And so in the same way, we have to keep in mind that, yes, this, this is a big victory 
for the pro-life movement, but it is not the end. In fact, I think that this is more like the beginning of the real fight. And I know that that, you know, seems like it detracts from the, the elation that I feel from the victory, but it really doesn't. And I'll tell you why. You see, the way that Roe worked is essentially we, were, we had our hands tied behind our back. Roe said you can restrict abortion only in late term abortions, which affects a, a small minority of abortions. And so you, the people, you, the individual states, you don't get to touch the time period where most abortions happen. You only get to regulate, you know, about one to two percent of abortions. And uh, those late term abortions are the only ones that you have any say in or are able to regulate. And so we've been fighting this battle with both hands tied behind our back the entire time. And now all that's happened is we've got our hands back. Now, in, at least in, in terms of the law, we don't have to be the left's punching bag because we've had the uh, weight of Roe hung around our necks to keep us from being able to fight to our fullest strength. And it was harder to make that case. Politically, I know what I'm talking about here because of the polling. People tend to gravitate more towards what they view as the moderate opinion. And the truth is, in a lot of ways, this was the moderate opinion. I know that a lot of people on the right and the left would hear that and go, huh? Because overturning Roe was a big deal. And so, reasonably, they assume that it is sort of an extremist view because it, it made a big move in a big way. But if you think about it, it actually is the moderate opinion. Because... The judges had the ability to, they could have just said, well, we think that life is a right that is enshrined to the Constitution, and they could make an argument for that. And then they could sit back and say, so now abortion is illegal in all 50 states. They didn't do that. They took what I thought was an honest look at it, and they took an honest look at the facts and the way that this case was crafted, and they said, well, we think you've got a point, and because of that, this is a difficult decision to figure out. This is very controversial. And we think that because it is controversial and because it has to do with the police power, power over life, then we should give this back to the states. That's moderation. That's restraint. You see, when Roe was codified into law, that restraint wasn't there. The judges looked at it and said, well, we think a woman should have a right to abortion. So boom, there, you have to have it across all 50 states. It doesn't matter if you are in you know deep red Alabama in the Bible Belt where most of the people, regardless of who you ask, says that abortion is absolutely illegal. You don't get a say in it. doesn't matter if most of your people want to do away with it. doesn't matter if most of your people think that it's wrong. You still have to have it. You still have to protect it just because we said so. And so our the judges that have come down with this opinion just said, no, we don't think we have the right to tell you how to handle this issue. This is controversial. It's a difficult question. And so California, you do you. Alabama, you do you. Washington, you know, whatever you're going to do, if you're going to have abortion up until the, the child's 85 years old, that's your prerogative. Texas, if you want to restrict it to when there's a heartbeat, that's up to you. And so that's how they handled it. And it really was the smarter way to handle it as well. So yes, this is a, a big win. Celebrate, rejoice, give thanks to God because this is something to be very grateful for. However, it's Monday now. The weekend's over. The celebration's done. Roll up your sleeves and get to work.
because now the fight begins where we have to start convincing people, hearts and minds, and even in Alabama, which right now is the only state where abortion is on a technical level completely banned. At least that's my understanding of it. Maybe I'm incorrect in my understanding of that. I know that there are some that basically ban it, uh, but I believe, if I'm not mistaken, te- uh, Alabama and Oklahoma are the strictest in the country. So we're one of the few states where it is completely banned outright. You may think, well, you know, we've already banned it here, so there's really nothing more we can do. Well, first of all, I think that there actually are some things in Alabama's laws that could be adjusted to make that better. However, we have to keep in mind that especially with the way that communication is now, we have a responsibility to try to convince other states and other people that this really is the right way to go. And part of that has to be because Alabama is a state that is largely banned abortion and our law should be the model for everybody else. We have a responsibility to show other people that it's working and it is, it has a negative, uh, a negative, or sorry, a uh, general positive effect on the population. And so that's something that we have to do as well. So celebrate, yes, but then roll up your sleeves and get to work. So that really kind of brings me to where we are now and where do we go from here. So there's a couple things I wanted to bring up. First of all, uh, what we need to do is keep an eye on the court because easy come, easy go. We did win a huge victory here. And yes, it would be difficult for the court to overturn it even if we had a shakeup in justices. However, that could very well happen. Justice Thomas, the greatest justice in my lifetime, he's an older gentleman. He's not going to live forever. I would love it if he could. In fact, I would love it if Justice Thomas just was the Supreme Court. Like we have one justice, it's it's Justice Thomas, and he decides everything. I would be fine with that. But that's not the world we live in. And so because of that, we have to keep our eye on the court, keep our eye on some of the, the younger justices and the minor leagues that might get called up. And you know, God forbid something should happen to one of the justices, they're going to have to go through a Senate hearing and they would have to go through a confirmation process. And right now the Senate is controlled by the left who would not support a nominee that was good. And, and we have a president that's a Democrat that also would not support a pro-life judge. And so keep an eye on the court. And I definitely would not put it past the liberals on the court to try something here. Uh, we also have to keep an eye on our states because, yes, Alabama has a pretty good law in the books now, but that could change. And there's other states, states I'm sure where you have family members, friends. If you're anything like me, I've got family all over the Southeast. And so because of that, there are people in other states that need to be convinced that the pro-life position to protect children is indeed the one that they subscribe to so that they can go out and they can be activists and they can vote. And it's up to us to equip them and also up to us to convince them if they are not somebody that is on that side. And so we have a responsibility to keep an eye on the states and and see um, some of the repercussions of their different policies on abortion as well. And ultimately, that kind of brings me to my final point, which is it's up to us to have to change hearts and minds. That's what we have to do now. Because the judges, we've been focused on 50 years of changing judges' hearts and minds. And that wasn't a bad thing. We needed to get rid of Roe. That was the first step. But now that that's gone, we need to primarily focus on winning over people. And eventually, here's the thing. The truth is that was always where the big battlefield was. Because as much as it was important to get rid of Roe, 
Roe would not have stood if 80, 90% of the American population was against abortion. Like at, at some point, it would have fallen regardless of that if 90% of the people were against it. And that's important because I think that we really are going to look back 50 years from today. We're going to look back 50 years ago and it will be like slavery is now to us. Like in the, the early 1800s, owning a slave was something that people had mixed feelings about as far as their morality goes. But it wasn't like something that was abhorrent. Now, even people that, you know, might have some racial animus, even people that are actual racist, generally speaking, they even would not go to the point of it's okay to own another person. Like just that thought is disgusting to them and it should be. Even if they may not necessarily think that all races are created equal, which is ridiculous because God only made one race, but even if they don't believe that, they still wouldn't go to the point to where they could fathom actually owning another human being. And so in the same sense, we need to get the country to the point to where people would not get an abortion, even if they happen to be socially much more liberal and, and think that you ought to be able to have sex with anything that's walking around. Like, even people like that should have to look at abortion and go, huh, killing your own child? No, that's, that's awful. That's the point where we need to get at. That needs to be the end goal. And it's going to take a while for us to get there. And now that the states can actually regulate it, I think that that's a much easier conversation to have. And it will get easier when there's not the, the newness of it, like a year or two from now, um, when people have gotten used to it and have seen that the sky didn't fall and actually a world without Roe is not a bad thing at all. Once that happens, you're actually going to see a lot more people that are open to having that conversation and open to having that kind of view. And so that's really where we have to kind of start. Um, and to be honest, I have seen some celebration from people that would claim to be Christians. I don't know if they actually are or not. I've seen some celebration about the overturning of Roe that would have the exact opposite effect. The scripture tells us to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So we're supposed to have the cunning to be able to change a person's mind on something, to have that conversation to where we're clever and thoughtful and we are able to impart to them wisdom that God has given us. But we're also supposed to be harmless as doves. So unlike the snake who uses his cunning for evil, we're supposed to also project an air of harmlessness and, and an air of compassion and empathy and some of the celebration i've seen over the weekend by christians has been the exact opposite of that a good example that i can bring up and and this is one that i've seen unfortunately on several different occasions and i was talking to my buddy over at, at church sunday and he mentioned a story that was almost identical to a couple of the scenarios that i've seen on social media where it's like you know where uh Somebody had mentioned that they were in a, a bad situation and this woman was seeking out an abortion. The response was, well, should have kept her legs crossed. That's not really projecting an air of harmlessness and love. That's projecting a air of, I don't care about this person. And um, well, you know, you, 
I know you're in a bad situation, but basically that that's what you get. Now, there is an element of truth in that, that your own poor decisions led you to a situation that you were not prepared to handle. That is correct. Just because that is correct doesn't mean that that should be the only thing we concern ourselves with. Like, they made a bad decision, ergo, I don't have to worry about that person. I don't have to care about that person anymore because they made a mistake. There is nothing further from the heart of God than that attitude. And so because of that, we need to be very aware of how we're coming off and the way that we engage people in these kinds of discussions. And so I'm going to give you a few tips here because remember, this is what tactics is all about. It is about communicating with people and telling you how to have difficult conversations with people who may disagree with you or may even be on the fence on some issues. And so I'm just going to give some generic tips. You could really utilize a lot of these in any conversation about a sensitive topic, but I've tailored some of them specifically to abortion. So uh, going through a couple of them real quickly. First of all, it kind of goes back to the example that I just gave. Don't use intentionally inflammatory language. So language that is designed to hurt, that it is specifically tailored to get under somebody's skin, that's not helpful. Maybe it makes you feel good. Maybe you get a lot of likes from it because, you know, you just eviscerated somebody. And there may even be an element of truth to it. Like I just pointed out, there's an element of truth to the argument, well, you should have kept your legs closed. But there are better ways to say that. You know, you can come at it from a place of compassion, caring about that person, and wanting to have a conversation to, to go back and forth and to learn some things from each other. But inflammatory language almost always makes people go to their corners. And it's very difficult to have a conversation that actually changes somebody's mind when both of you are busy trying to punch each other. Like, it's just not generally the way good conversations happen rhetorically. And so when two people are just trying to outdo one another or just trying to win the argument, it's very rare that at some point somebody cools off and says, hey, let's, let's actually discuss the issue that we're talking about. And so don't use inflammatory language. And that would include, by the way, ad hominem attacks like that. Don't, don't attack people. Attack ideas. One of the things about Robert's Rules, which is the form of debate that I'm well-versed in, I'm a registered parliamentarian. One of the... Uh, one of the things that is a part of parliamentary procedure is you don't argue with the person, you argue with the debate. And so when you get up and you debate, you don't look at the other person, you don't talk directly to the other person, you don't mention the other member's name, you say the previous speaker or the person that made this point, something to that effect. You don't make it a personal attack. You don't even direct it towards the person that made the argument. You're arguing with the idea, not the person. Now, obviously, when you're in a less formal debate setting, like maybe just talking to somebody that disagrees with you at a, a family get-together or because you're friends and have coffee or a coworker or something like that, you're not as formal with it, but the idea and the principle is still the same. You're attacking their ideas. You're not attacking them. And if you keep that in mind, you will have much more civil conversations and people will recognize that and they will feel less defensive when you do something like that. Another one that kind of goes hand in hand with that is you want to ask a lot of questions. And I don't mean badger them, and I don't mean you ask questions snidely to try to get them into a trap. Genuinely ask some questions. And there's a couple reasons for that. First of all, when you ask a lot of questions, what that does is it, it lessens the, the probability 
that you will ask a question or make an assumption about their belief that you misunderstood. I've seen people have whole arguments where if they just ask a clarification question or two very early on in the conversation could have been completely avoided. And interestingly enough, sometimes the two people actually wind up agreeing with one another most on, on most of the thing, but they found like some point of contention or, or maybe even they agree, but they don't realize they agree. And because they didn't ask a question about what that person believes, sometimes it's okay to take a break and say, okay, let me make sure I'm understanding you here and then restate what you understood about what they were saying. And so asking a lot of questions is a good tip to follow. Uh, and it also, what it does is it kind of uses the Socratic method that if somebody makes a claim, don't just let the claim hang, make them actually justify their claim. Because a lot of times what happens is somebody will make a claim that is incorrect or untruthful, and maybe they even know it's untruthful, or they did so in error, making a claim that they didn't realize they made. And so what happens there is the best counter to that is to say, okay, you cited that, you cited that, you know, for example, in this debate, um, Christians don't actually help orphans or widows or anything. Can, can you, can you justify that claim? Where are you getting that information? Because I guarantee you a lot of times on stuff like that, they're just parroting talking points that they've been told and they don't actually know whether it's true or not. And if that is true, then they will either realize, oh, I actually don't know that. Maybe I should look into it myself. It might spur on a little curiosity in their own mind and it gives you a chance to rebut that claim without uh, making it seem like you're attacking them if you ask them hey where are you getting that information and then you explain to them that the point that they just made is incorrect then all of a sudden you don't look like somebody that's just trying to badger them you look like someone that is genuinely trying to understand which should be the way that you actually are it shouldn't just be an act it should be sincere and so because of that that's a good way to help them sort of lower their defenses as well. And sort of to that point, there's a lot of people that are a lot more pro-life than they think. So for example, on this issue, there might be a person that considers themselves pro-choice because they believe that a woman should have the option up until about 15 weeks. That's actually a pretty common, and we'll look at some stats here in a second, that's actually not an uncommon stance for people to take as Americans. However, they don't realize that, that that would be a pretty pro-life stance. Like 15 weeks is what the Mississippi law was. And so a lot of people would talk about how horrible the Mississippi law is. And then if you ask them, okay, so where do you think the woman should have a cutoff date as far as when she shouldn't be allowed to have an abortion? Now, some of them will say, you know, up until the point of birth. But a lot of Americans, that if you ask them that question, they say, well, it should be pretty early in the presidency, like er, pre pre presidency, pretty early in the pregnancy, like, you know, maybe 15 weeks or something. And then you say, well, actually, that's what the Mississippi law was, is it was a ban on abortions after 15 weeks. And so, see, then all of a sudden. They're like, huh. Maybe I don't know enough about this. And it's interesting that on this issue. You would have some people that consider themselves pro-life, but she should have the option up till 15 weeks or pro-choice because I think that they should have the choice up until that point. So you could actually have two people that hold exactly the same belief that label themselves as pro-life or pro-choice. And so that's why it's important, especially on this issue, to ask a lot of questions because you may find that the person doesn't actually disagree with you as much as you think.
And so that is certainly a possibility. And I think that this is also an incredibly important part of this with abortion or any topic. When you ask a lot of questions, it informs the other person that you actually care about them. You actually care about their ideas. You're trying to learn. You're trying to listen. You're trying to learn more about them and what they think. It's not just, I am going to impart my wisdom upon you from on high because I know things and you don't. It's, hey, why don't we just get together and reason together? That's what Philip said in the Gospels. And so it's it's an appropriate Christian attitude to adopt that I don't know everything. I'm not perfect. So why don't we try to learn from one another instead of just trying to snipe at one another or, uh, you know, try to win an argument? Why don't we actually have a, a real conversation between each, uh, between our, ourselves? That's a good attitude to have. Another thing that you can do, and this is extremely important for having a productive conversation, never, and I do mean never, assume malice unless you have a very good reason to assume malice. Like, if somebody basically uh, does a character assault, then there might be a little bit of malice in there. But unless you have a very good reason to assume that the other person doesn't like you, uh, you know, has some kind of vendetta against you, never assume that just because they said something that disagrees with you. And the reason that I stress that and the reason that I say that is important is because an awful lot of arguments go nowhere because the two people assume that the other person hates them, even though that's not the case. And even if you do find that malice is present, they actually are motivated by malice, and that's the reason they're being so nasty to you, that does not give you permission to carpet bomb them. Like a lot of people, even people that would profess themselves to be Christians, they see something that they believe, sometimes they're right, sometimes they're not, that there is a maliciousness from the person they're having a discussion with. And they're like, all right, he threw the first punch. Therefore, gloves off. Let's go. That's not really a Christian attitude to have. Their behavior doesn't justify your bad behavior. And so because of that, you really have to be willing to be open and to have these conversations. And even if the other person is being mean or nasty, it doesn't give you a right to lash back. Now, if they are being malicious, that may be a good sign that this conversation is no longer worth having because I can't convince them no matter what if they're just, you know, wanting to, to throw haymakers at me all day long. You know, it may be time to kick the dust off of your feet because you don't want to throw your pearls before swine, which Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Like, that may be an indication of that, but it's not a permission slip to just attack them personally. So even if you do find malice, don't do that. Another tip that I would uh, bring up, ask them to look at things from your perspective. That can be a very powerful tool. And you don't have to ask this every, like, you, this shouldn't be something that every other time that you talk, say, just look at this from my perspective, but it is an effective tool that you can bring out on occasion. So for example, I've actually had discussions with people on abortion where this has been very effective, where I will say, okay, I, I hear what you're saying, but just look at it from my perspective. If I believe that an unborn child really is a human, can you understand why the woman's quote unquote right to an abortion kind of takes the back seat if we're talking about the life of another human being. And even if they wind up not agreeing with you, a lot of times when you ask that question, a reasonable person will look at that and go, 
you know, I kind of see where they're coming from. And that also helps bring down the walls and the defensiveness a little bit. And so because of that, that sort of spurs on some empathy. And uh, a, a really good example of that with the abortion debate uh, would be like, I had somebody say that, well, I, I don't really know if there's life in the womb. I don't know if people that haven't been born yet really are a human and therefore entitled to a right to life and the protections that come with being just being a person. And so I said, well, look at it from my perspective here. Sometimes an analogy is helpful. Let's say that you're riding down the road and right in the middle of the road, right in the middle of your lane, there is a giant cardboard box that very clearly you can read it from where you are, has the word puppies across it. You don't know that puppies are in that box. You have no idea. In fact, it's very likely, I would say even more likely than not, because who's going to put a box of puppies in the middle of the road, that probably what happened is that somebody had a box that had puppies in it at one point and then threw the box out and somehow the wind blew it into the road or something. That's probably what happened. But if there is even a chance there's puppies in that box, why wouldn't you just move over into the other lane? See, if you're not sure then you should err on the side of caution. If we don't know if that's a human life in there, shouldn't the default action be to not kill it, to leave it alone? Because uncertainty, you would err on the side of life, I would think. And so in the same way that you wouldn't just run over the box, even though it may not have any puppies in it, you wouldn't want to kill a baby living in a mother's womb if it is in fact a baby. If you aren't sure then maybe that's the right path to take. And, and the person that was a pro-choice person actually said, you know, I, I, that kind of makes sense to me. And so I don't know if she actually wound up changing her mind on that, but I gave her something to think about. And so sometimes that can be a very powerful tool is to just ask the person to see things from your perspective. And then it's a much shorter walk over to actually taking your position if they kind of see where the rationale is coming from. And then finally, uh, I would say settle issues one at a time, because a lot of times where you see an argument spiral out of control, normally the reason for that is because one person says one thing and then the other person responds. And then the first person says, yeah, well, what about? And then they say something completely off topic from the exchange that just happened. That happens a lot. Because a lot of times when people get engaged in an argument, whether they realize they're doing it or not, they'll have an argument, that argument will get rebutted, and then without saying anything else, they'll just change the subject because they don't like the cognitive dissonance that creates in their brain. And so when that happens, just very politely, very calmly say, hang on just a second, let's settle this first, and then we'll get over to the other topic that you're talking about. Like, for example, if you are talking about whether or not the person in the womb is indeed a life and the person immediately goes to, oh, well, what about all the people that don't support them? I was like, oh, OK, well, you know, that's a discussion worth having. But why don't we put a pin in that for right now and get back to the topic that we were discussing about whether or not the person is actually alive or not, because whether or not a certain political party is supporting a group of people or not is really kind of immaterial to whether or not they're a person. And so on abortion or a lot of other political debates, that is a very effective tool in staying on topic and you're not wasting your time just running around in circles trying to put out fires every time they bring up a brand new argument. 
So that actually helps a lot too. And this would kind of be a bonus one. This is not a hard and fast rule, which is why I'm putting it in the bonus category. There are times where this could be a productive conversation, but it's super, super, super rare. And that is, don't have these conversations on social media. Believe me, it's an extremely effective communication tool. It has a great ability to reach a lot of people in a short amount of time. However, it reaches a lot of people in a short amount of time with a text-based format. I would say don't even have this conversation over a text message, even though that's much more personal and people are more apt to think a lot more about their individual message towards you. I would say don't even have it there. If you want to have a conversation of substance that can actually change somebody's mind and will actually help improve your understanding of your own arguments and your own position as well, you need to have that conversation face-to-face. -face. It's more personal. It, uh, it doesn't completely absolve you from, but it goes a long way in keeping the issue of thinking that there's malice behind something. It keeps that at bay. It makes the odds of that significantly less likely. And so there's a lot of reasons why you should strive to have these arguments face-to-face -face with a person in a room, preferably in a place where you can kind of sit down, be comfortable, and hash a lot of these things out. And sometimes you don't have that opportunity. Sometimes, you, sometimes you're just not there. Sometimes these conversations spring up in places you don't expect. If it is an option and if it is reasonable, Ask the person if they'd like to continue the conversation in more depth at a different time where they can really get into the conversation. And if they can't do that or won't do that, or, or maybe you can't do that for whatever reason, like maybe you're from out of town, something like that, you're visiting somebody, then yeah, maybe try to have a little bit of that conversation there and then, but it's always better if you're going to have a serious conversation that might actually affect how someone thinks, if you can do it in a setting that's more conducive to that actually taking place. And so those would be my tips for having the conversation. Now I'm gonna very quickly go over some of the most common arguments that I've seen on social media and in other places. These are arguments that are not new to the conversation. I mean, we're talking about arguments that have been there for decades since Roe v. Wade came out. So uh, some of these are newer than others or get used more commonly than others, but. These are just sort of some of the quick uh, ways to rebut some of these common arguments that you see people on the left and people that are in favor of abortion making. So first of all, very common one, very easy to rebut. Men shouldn't get, get a say. So there's several very easy ways to rebut this. First of all, you should point out, and I think this is appropriate to do, that that's an ad hominem fallacy. So for those of you who aren't well-versed in formal debate, just explain to the person well, that means it's a personal attack. It's not actually an attack on the ideas. Like my ideas can be right regardless of whether or not I have the same experiences as you. For example, right is right regardless of who says it. Slavery is actually a good example of this. Like based on that standard, Abraham Lincoln shouldn't have been against slavery because he was a white guy. Or, you know, the men that voted for the 19th Amendment, they shouldn't have voted on that amendment because they were men. And so why should they get to vote on a, a law that says women have the right to vote now? See, right is going to be right regardless of who is actually saying it. And so because of that, um, you should always start from a position of you're not attacking, like I said, the person, you're attacking the argument. And say, look, 
if, if my ideas and my arguments are flawed, by all means, point those out to me. I'm open to criticism. But you saying that I can't say anything because I'm a man, that's just a convenient way to end the conversation. And if you're confident that your position is the correct one, then you shouldn't need to use that as a way to defend your argument. Um, and the thing is, and this is a important point to, because sometimes people won't accept that at face value, an important point to bring up is that the truth is, there's not as much uh, there's not as much difference between men and women on this issue as you would think. There's some, but it's certainly not all of it. So let's go ahead and look at this poll. This was taken by Vox News, and it was a question back in 2019 about where people stood on the issue of life, men versus women. Now you'll notice the people that identify themselves as pro-choice just barely over 30 percent. That's actually the same for men and women. The ones that are pro-life, interestingly enough, has more women that claim to be pro-life than the men. And I wonder if that is because there have been so many men that would otherwise claim to be pro-life that are not because they've heard this argument over and over again that if you're a man, then you're, you're not allowed to have an opinion on this. Or maybe it's because there are some men kind of in the, the gray zone where they're, they're deadbeats and they want to be able to have sex, but they don't actually want to outlaw abortion just in case they need that as a backdoor uh, to, to eliminate the child that they've created. There's a couple of different reasons why that could be the case, but the point is, even on that stat, not a ton of difference in men and women. And the same goes for the ones who would consider themselves neither or both. So when you say that, when you look at the numbers, it's actually not true that women are significantly more likely to be uh, in favor of abortion than men. So let's look at a Pew Research poll, and this one is a little bit more recent. This is from the year 2022. I think it was uh, May. So this is really only about a month, month and a half old. So if you look at this one, this gives a breakdown of when abortion should be legal or illegal in all or most cases. So you will notice that when it comes to legal, abortion being legal in most cases, women are a significantly higher portion of that. But when you talk about illegal in most cases, it's a little bit more even. And even though 63 is higher than it's been in a while, that still means that there's a significant portion of women that think, or sorry, excuse me, that still means that there's a significant portion of women that think that abortion should be illegal in most cases. That's a little over a third of all women. And if you get into the, this is a very straightforward poll. If you get into the actual details, like when abortion should occur, when it should be illegal, when it should not be illegal, that kind of thing, because um, somebody that, again, this kind of goes back to the polling thing that I was saying earlier, you could ask somebody, do you think abortion should be legal in most cases? And they would say, sure. Um, but all or most cases could also mean that it gets restricted at like 24 weeks or 15 weeks. And so again, this is just kind of giving a bird's eye view of it. If you, I would imagine if you got into the actual details, most women would fall in the category that most Americans do, which is that it should be regulated on some level, but not necessarily at the level that they're talking about here, all or most cases. How you define most cases is very important in that question, because what somebody might consider most 
wouldn't necessarily be what the next person considers most. And another thing that I would like to bring up is if you ever do confront somebody that takes the stance on it, a good way to kind of build a bridge is to bring up, I do think that we should make men more accountable. Like, I'm bothered by the fact, and I'm not just saying this to win an argument, I genuinely believe this. I am bothered by the fact that it seems on every level we have done everything we can to disconnect sex from responsibility. Not just on the consent side, but also on the childbearing side, which is the natural result of having sex. And I am very, very bothered by the fact that there's a lot of times where the man just kind of skips town and doesn't really bear any financial responsibility whatsoever for the product of him using a woman for his own gratification. And so because of that, I really do think that there should be a lot steeper legal penalties. And if you are doing that, then you need to take responsibility for what's going on. I think that there should be tighter legal repercussions on men. And so that really goes a long way, especially for people that are of the pro-choice persuasion, specifically because they're feminist. That goes a long way in showing them that, look, this isn't about uh, just wanting women to have a bad time or just not caring about what happens to them. I want the men to be responsible, too. I want the women to practice abstinence or contraceptives instead of having abortions, but I also want the men to do the same thing. You know, it takes two to tango. I think that they should actually step up and take responsibility for their own actions. And that goes a long way in telling people where your priorities really lie. Because at its core, real men want to protect babies. Real men care about babies. They want to defend them. They have that male instinct, that protective instinct that drives us to defend our children. That's the way that this works. And so because of that, even children that aren't your children, we have that protective instinct. And women, even when ones that are feminist and wildly pro-choice, when you say that and when you sort of bear that out, when you have that attitude, they recognize it. And they may not even necessarily agree with you because of it, but at least they will respect it. There is something internal in them, unless they've just gone over to full depravity. There is something internal that recognizes and admires men that genuinely want to protect people that they view as innocent and in need of protecting. And so because of that, that's a really good starting point if you are a man trying to have this conversation. Uh, another one that's important to bring up, uh, they'll say, stop forcing your religion on me. I've gone over this argument so many times I'm blue in the face, but the thing is you do not have to be a religious person to come down on the pro-life side. Now, obviously, for many Americans, that is the starting point. Their religion teaches that abortion is wrong because it teaches that people in the womb are indeed people. The Bible says that. The Old Testament says that. So if you're Jewish, you fall right along that. And the truth is the Quran says that. And I say this because I'm studying the Quran right now. I've read several passages that talk about people in the womb, and it talks about them as people. There's a whole bunch of stuff in the Quran I do not agree with. But if you're looking at all three of the major Abrahamic religions, which constitutes the vast majority of the human race when it comes to religion, every single one of those teachings very clearly point to the fact that killing a child inside its, its mother's womb is wrong. And so because of that, you can understand why people come to the conclusion of, oh, well, you only believe that because of your religion. But the science also confirms that. 
And you can make these arguments without ever going to a place of religion. Now, if you determine in this conversation that the person is religious, might not be a bad idea to appeal to that. But if you don't, then you have two options. You can either find a way to convince the person that the Bible is a reliable source of moral clarity and moral wisdom, and we should adhere to it, or you can do the other route, which is you can make this case without ever talking about religion. I have on many occasions. In fact, you'll notice most of the rebuttals that I've talked about so far, none of them have to do with religion. Why? Because the religious argument's extremely easy to make. When someone asks, uh, why is abortion wrong? And there's somebody that believes in the Bible, all I have to do is open up the scripture and show them some verses. That's it. So I'm making these cases on non-religious grounds because I know that that's not what appeals to the vast majority of the people that are in favor of abortion. So um, the thing is, Christianity, even more so than Judaism or Islam, because those are both theocracies. Like they, they call for theocracies, Israel in the form of the nation of Israel, Islam in the form of Sharia law. Christianity has none of that. And so if you are a Christian, you actually don't believe in theocracies. In fact, Jesus had the opportunity to set up a theocracy and turned it down. He says, I am not a king. My kingdom is not of this world. And so because of that, Christians don't believe that. And one way to illustrate this to somebody, if you do find yourself in this conversation, is to say, look, there's a lot of things my religion teaches are wrong that I don't think should be illegal. If you're like me, you can use the example of, I think that it's, it's very wrong to lie, but I also believe in freedom of speech. I don't think that you should be prosecuted for lying. There's actually a specific part of the Constitution in the Fifth Amendment that says that you don't have to bear witness against yourself. So, uh, you know, you have the ability to lie, even though that's one of the sins that is most railed against in the Scripture. And so you can point that out and say, so my being against abortion as a law is not a product of my religious belief that it's morally wrong. I do believe it's morally wrong. But there's a lot of things I think that are morally wrong that shouldn't be illegal. Uh, as, as horrible as adultery is, I don't want cops running around after cheating wives and cheating husbands and figuring out where they're going to see their, mis their mister or their mistress. That's not a thing I want government doing. But it doesn't change the fact that it's an incredible moral sin. And so the, re the rationale for abortion being illegal is that it ends another human life, not that my religion teaches that it's incorrect. And the science backs up the fact that it is a individual life. There is no way to objectively define what a human being is as an individual without including the unborn in that, unless you specifically say who has been born. Like you have to basically use the word to define the word in that sense. The only way to exclude it is if you include uh, that they're not born. So that's the only way to do that. Any other way that you objectively, scientifically define what a human being is, an unborn child would fit that mold because they have their own set of DNA, their own incredibly unique genetic code that no other person on the planet has unless they are a twin, in which case there's just more than one body. But in any way that you could define it, that is a new person. They have their own organs. They have their own heart. They have their own circulatory system. They have their own nervous system. Their reactions are different than their mother's reactions. We can actually see inside the womb babies that will be scared, sucking their thumb, move around. These are all things that are independent of the mother. If you've ever been pregnant or known somebody that was, in my case, 
you know what that's like because sometimes you're just sitting there and the baby kicks around. You know, that, that, that's the way that it works. And so because of that, you can make this case through scientific means. You don't have to go to the religion. And normally when this happens, when they try to make this case, what they will try to do is they will cite, well, religion should be separate from the state. In fact, Thomas Jefferson, who, uh, you know, it's, it is funny that they quote Jefferson because even though I love Jefferson and think that he is a good person to cite, he was nowhere near the Constitutional Convention. He was actually in France at the time. But regardless, they'll say that, well, because Thomas Jefferson said a separation of church and state, which he said in a letter to the Danesbury Baptist, which actually he was saying that the uh, state should not get involved with the church, not the other way around. But anyway, even if you know all that, they'll say that Thomas Jefferson, well, he really said that the church and state should be separate. And so uh, really, even if you have this religious belief, then you it shouldn't impose on me. Now, again, you can make that case without making the religious argument. However, let's actually go to Thomas Jefferson and see how well that argument holds up when you read his actual words. So this is from Thomas Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia, where he is talking about the Native American population and actually mentions abortion directly in this book. So he says the, and he's talking about Native Americans here, if you read the earlier paragraph, the Native American women are submitted to unjust drudgery. This, I believe, is the case with every barbarous people. With such force is law. The stronger sex therefore imposes on the weaker. It is civilization alone which replaces women in the enjoyment of their natural equality. They raise fewer children than we do. The causes of this are to be found not in a difference of nature, but of circumstance. The women very frequently attending the men in their parties of war and of hunting, childbearing becomes extremely inconvenient for them. It is said, therefore, that they have learnt the practice of procuring abortion by the use of some vegetable, and that it even extends to prevent conduction for a considerable time after. During these parties, they are exposed to numerous hazards, to excessive exertion, to the greatest extremities of hunger. So think about that. What is Thomas Jefferson actually saying there? He's saying that Native American women are oppressed and that the Native American men take advantage of them. And then he lists all of the ways that they are being taken advantage of and not, as he put it, being held in equal regard. They don't have their equality because of how they're being treated by men and listed among those treatments is their men force them to get abortions. By the way, Thomas is 100% right on this. I mean, he could not, you could not come up with a more clear, convincing piece of evidence that Thomas Jefferson was against abortion and actually thought it was misogyny and that women were being abused by being forced to abort their children even though it doesn't say that they were forced specifically, he's saying that the, the, they culturally have these abortions on a regular basis and that it is bad for the women to have to do that. And so he's making the case that abortion is wrong and that it actually abuses women because it is men taking advantage of them and he's 100% right. But it's just funny that the same people that try to quote Jefferson as their justification for religion not playing into it, well, if you actually look at Jefferson's stance on abortion, what he thought of it. He thought that it was absolutely morally reprehensible 
that Native Americans were aborting their own children and that it was actually keeping women from being equal because it was keeping them from being mothers. It was keeping them from being the people that God intended them to be. So there's a little bit of a, a further understanding of this. Let's go back to Jefferson and something that he said in a letter to John Tyler in 1810. He discussed this uh, when he was talking about Blackstone. And he said, Blackstone, William Blackstone, is to us what the Al-Quran, which is what he called the Quran, uh, is to the Mohammedans or Muslims, you know, derived from the name Muhammad, that everything which is necessary is in him and what is not in him is not necessary. So essentially what he's saying is when we're talking about American common law, he cites William Blackstone saying, basically, if Blackstone said it, then it's what we believe. If Blackstone didn't say it, it's not necessary. And he even equates it to the religious fervor of a religious figure like the Muslims revere the Quran. He's saying if Blackstone said it, it's basically law. And that's what he believed in. And he believed that when it came to legal scholarship, he was the first one. So let's look at what William Blackstone said about this issue. For if a woman is quick with child and by a potion or otherwise kills it in her womb, or if any one beat her, whereby the child dies in her body, and she is delivered of a dead child, this, though not murder, was by the ancient law homicide or manslaughter. But at the present, it is not looked upon in quite so atrocious a light, though it remains a very heinous misdemeanor. So in other words, the guy that Thomas Jefferson said, if you want to know about American case law, if you want the definitive case of what we believe is common law here in America, whatever William Blackstone said, it goes. You read what William Blackstone said. He says, yeah, if something causes the child to die in the womb, that is a very heinous crime. He says it's not murder, but you also have to remember who he's putting the odious on. He's saying that the woman that engages in this or the man that beats her and the child dies, he says, this should count as homicide. And he's saying that it should be a very heinous misdemeanor. In other words, there should be pretty stiff penalties for something like this. He believed that abortion was wrong and the law ought to protect the child inside the mother. But if that's not enough for you, let's go ahead and look at Virginia common law at 1810 at the time. And remember that these laws were crafted by the very same people that crafted our constitution. Now, the constitution doesn't address this because it's a state's issue. It's a state law, which this decision rightfully noticed. But here you go. This is Virginia common law, which the founders agreed with and, and put together. But if a woman be with child and any gives her a potion to destroy the child within her, notice how the language very closely resembles Blackstone, and she take it and it works so strongly that it kills her, uh, talking about the baby here, this is murder. For it was not given to her to cure her of a disease, but unlawfully to destroy the child within her. And therefore, he that gives her a potion to this end must take the hazard, and if it kills the mother, it is murder. Also, if a woman 
will be quick with child, and by a potion or otherwise kill it, killeth it in her womb, or if a man beat her whereby the child dieth in her body, and she is delivered of a dead child, this is a great misprison, but no murder. So what is that saying there? It is clarifying and giving weight to what Blackstone believed, which is if some third party, whether accidentally or on purpose, hurts the mother and it causes injury to where it kills the child, it's a bad misdemeanor and it should carry a very stiff penalty, but it is not murder. However, if a person, and remember that this is in a section specifically talking about surgeons and doctors in the law, if somebody, presumably a doctor, gives her a potion designed to kill the child within her, that is murder. So all these people that are making the case that, well, you just want to go after doctor, you just want to go after women and you want women to be held accountable for murder. No, no. Even back in Virginia, when all of this started, even they recognized that there could be some legal penalties for the women, presumably based on their behavior. But for the doctors, it was murder and they should be tried as murderers because they should know better. They should know that the child inside is indeed a child. And so the precedent was set back then. We already understand what the precedent was at the time. So when you're talking about, you know, all of that going on, that's really how you win that argument. Uh, another one here, um, you know, the idea that you don't force your religion on somebody well, I'm sorry, but the very man that said that also believed that it was not imposing his religion on anyone to hold ab abortion as murder. So that argument simply doesn't fly. Now, uh, another argument that you will hear very, very often is this is about controlling women's bodies. You hear the modified version of this, my body, my choice. So here's the thing. Bodily autonomy is very important. It's a libertarian value. It's an American value. You ought to be able to do with your body what you wish. However, I know that you've heard this argument before. When it comes to the woman, the baby is not her body. That is a separate body. It has its own DNA. It has its own heart. It has its own lungs. If it's a boy baby, it, it has a little penis. It has boy parts. It, it has Y chromosomes. That DNA is not the mother's DNA anymore that my DNA is not my mother's DNA. And that is true whether I'm in the womb or outside the womb. That doesn't change. Now, the level of development certainly changes, but the level of development changes your entire life. Are you less human because you're five years old as opposed to 20 years old? Are you less human because you have a disease like Down syndrome that causes you to never really develop? Are people that are dwarfs or, or suffer from dwarfism? Uh, that, that have that issue, that have that medical condition, they don't develop past a certain point. So does that mean that they're not people anymore? Like that argument doesn't hold water. And so when you're talking about it, there's no real, like I said, there's no consistent medical definition to say that the baby is the mother's body. It, it simply doesn't exist. In fact, during fetal development, there actually has to be a barrier created between the mother and the child to keep the blood from mixing if they have different blood types. And so that's something that, you know, can actually take place is that the, the blood will transfer things like nutrients, but they don't transfer blood cells between one another because that's a different body. You can't have one person's blood in, in with the other. You know, the mom and the baby can have completely different blood types. It's another indication. And so 
uh, you know, does the mom have four eyes? Does she have 20 fingers? Like I could go all day with these things, but um, the, this is actually a pretty easy one to counter because as much as I do care about bodily autonomy, I care about the bodily autonomy of the mother, but I also care about the bodily autonomy of the child. And the problem with this argument is you're saying bodily autonomy is the justification for taking another body's autonomy. You know, I can't say that because I have bodily autonomy, I ought to be able to fling my fist in the air and punch you in the face. Well, no, because I am exercising bodily autonomy by doing that. But what I've then done is compromised your bodily autonomy in doing so. And so in the same way, you don't get to take out the life of another human being just because you want your bodily autonomy. And so that's a, a big issue for that one as well. Um, I'm fine with women making their own medical choices as long as it does not bring harm to another. I think that's a very consistent standard to have. And finally, I think that if you are having this discussion, again, this is a way to build a bridge. I really think the starting point ought to be, let's do everything we can to stop unwanted pregnancies. And yes, that means contraceptive. That means abstinence. And if somehow a, a, a pregnancy does happen, I think that the answer to that is let's look at some other options like adoption. You know, that, that's something that there are just not enough children to meet demand when it comes to adoption. I have some of my best friends right now that have been waiting for two years to adopt. I had people at my church that were looking to adopt and uh, one of the couples, for example, they waited like three years and had two babies that they had to send back because the mother decided within a week that actually she did want her children, which, I mean, it's good that they're going to be raised by their biological mother. It's their prerogative. But that's kind of indicative of the fact that it's really hard to adopt and there's not nearly enough babies. And, and if there were more babies, then there would be more people that have those babies and to give them loving homes. It's it's the the, the myth that if these babies are born, then they're going to be subject to a life of extreme poverty and hardship is simply not true. It may be true in some cases, but it's certainly not true in all, especially if the baby is given up for adoption. Uh, so let's find ways to prevent unwanted pregnancy. That should be the starting point. And then if it does happen, let's look at ways to make the adoption process easier on the adoptees, the adopters. Let's make it easier on everybody. I, I'm for laws that reform that and make it easier and less expensive for that to take place and for giving the mother more options. Uh, a mother that is on regular birth control is much better off than one that has to go through an abortion, both for the mother's sake and for the child's sake. And on top of that, I really don't understand why birth control continues to be a prescription drug. I mean, I get that it's a powerful drug. I get that you need to not misuse it, but you can misuse a drug even if it is prescription. I don't understand why contraceptives aren't over-the-counter things. I really don't. Um, I, just one suggestion for me. But if you bring that up to someone in that conversation, it may be a way for them to think, okay, this person actually does care about women and, and trying to help them out there. And that's a good thing. So another one, uh, I've heard this one so many times. In fact, Elizabeth Warren said something very similar. That these six unelected men, um, of course, there's one woman in there, Amy Coney Barrett. So five unelected men overturning precedent and pushing their beliefs on the rest of us. That's fascism. Okay, well, first of all, this decision specifically gave up power. It didn't consolidate it. So what actually happened is the federal government had this power that it shouldn't have had. It had the power over the states to tell them, no, you're not allowed to do that. 
you're not allowed to restrict abortion at this point. You're not allowed. And so what they did was they decided that the best course of action was to give that power back to the states. That the states actually got to make their own decision on this. So regardless of how you view it or how you view abortion, this is not a consolidation of federal power. It's actually a relinquishing of federal power. Now, you may not like that and you may not like the result, but there's no way to make the argument that this is fascism because this is people actually abdicating their power and giving it to someone else. You know, that would uh, be like trying to claim that I was hoarding a bunch of money by giving money to people. It doesn't make any sense. You're just like, well, you're just hoarding all the money. It's like, no, I literally just gave all of it away. <laughs> There's no way to logically make the point that this is fascism because it's actually people at the federal level, the Supreme Court justice is saying, no, we don't want this power. We think that you guys should have this power. And so that's actually what's going on here. Um, and Justice Thomas actually made that point. But beyond that, Roe was a power grab. The reason that they are giving up this power is because Roe actually seized that power and said, only we get to decide when you're allowed to restrict abortion. And when that happened, it was seven men, not Amy Coney Barrett, not Justice Clarence Thomas, who's black. It was seven white guys that said, no, no, we're going to make Roe the law of the land and every state has to offer abortion up until this point. That's what Roe did. And so because of that, you have to uh, make the point here, if someone does bring this up, that actually what this is is the court abdicating power away from themselves. You know, I've heard so many times somebody try to say that this is the end of democracy. The democracy is ending. We're, we're ending authoritarian fascism. Well, now, hold on a second. What this decision means is you get to vote. I get to vote on who my state elected officials are, and then they can vote in turn as my representative to have abortion or not have abortion. That's true of every single state in the union. The Senate, too, with the exception of, I think, Virginia, which is the only non-bicameral house, like they're a unicameral house. Uh, but every other one, I have multiple representatives that I get to vote on, that I get to elect, that get to affect policy on this issue. And so actually, the power has been returned to the people. It's not being taken away from them. So if they make that one, that's a very easy one to debunk as well. Another one that you're going to hear a lot is... Well, the majority of Americans were against overturning Roe. So there is an element of truth to that. So I would say this one is correct, but only kind of. And the reason that I say kind of is because if you dig into the details, it's actually a lot less cut and dry. So, for example, let's go ahead and look at this one. This is a poll from the Pew Research Center, and this is on opposition for overturning Roe v. Wade. And you can see there it goes all the way up to 70 in the year 2019 for people that were against Roe v. Wade being overturned. And 70% is a lot of people that were against Roe v. Wade being overturned. However, if you dig into the details, you understand that this is not really indicative of what people actually thought. And the reason that I say that is that same Pew study that found the numbers that I just showed you, the same organization also found this. The majority of adults say that abortion should be legal in some cases, but illegal in other cases. In other words, they're pretty split. So you'll see that the uh, 
the people that are on what we would call the extreme sides, in other words, illegal in all cases, no exception, that's only 8%. And then illegal in all cases, but there are some exceptions, that's two. So you add that up to 10. And then you have the other, on the other side, the 19 and the six, that's the people that believe it should be legal in all, or at least most cases. So that leaves you with a little over 50% in the middle that say, well, it kind of depends. They think that it should be legal in some cases, illegal in other cases. Now, to be clear, this is one of those weird cases where I think the extremes are the only ones that make sense because it's either a life or it's not a life. And if it's not a life, who cares? And if it is a life, then it's of utmost importance. But I don't understand how you can say, well, I think it should be okay in some cases and not in others. That really doesn't really make any sense to me. Uh, I think that the kill it at any time up to the point of birth is far more consistent than the, well, it depends in some cases, even though I think that's abysmal and horrible. But my point is, if you're looking at the public opinion, there are people that say it should be legal in some cases and illegal in others. So let's go ahead and look at the breakdown of that. So these are the people that oppose or agree with abortion at different times. Now that 8% and that 19%, because they believe legal in all cases or illegal in all cases, those aren't going to move at all. So we're just looking at the people in the middle and where that movement is. So you'll notice up top, that's six weeks into pregnancy. So that's the heartbeat bills. There are heartbeat bills on the books that say after a heartbeat is detectable, you can't have an abortion. And most Americans do disagree with that. So unless you're in a ruby red state where there's a lot of conservatives, probably not going to get a heartbeat bill. But you look at that, it's still kind of divided down the middle. Like it's by no means a blowout for either side. Um, most people, in fact, almost 50% believe it should be legal in that scenario, but you're still looking at about half and half at six weeks. Now, at 14 weeks, it's a little bit different. Like you have uh, a little bit more people that are either unsure or think that it should be illegal. And then most people believe that it should be illegal to have an abortion in the last bracket, which is 24 weeks. So I want to point something out to you real quickly. That's the Mississippi law right there. The 14 weeks, only one more week than that would have been the 15 week ban, which is what we're talking about with the Mississippi law. So the other standard down here, 24 weeks, which is the first trimester, which is about where viability starts looking at least somewhat uh, in play. That's the Casey standard, which replaced the Roe standard of the trimester system. The viability standard in Casey usually kicks in not long after this point. So when we're looking at public opinion, we can get a pretty good idea of how people would actually vote or what people would actually feel like if we were judging not based on their feeling of whether they're pro-choice or pro-life, but are actually looking at the details themselves. I want to point this out. When you're talking about the Mississippi law, 55% are in favor of regulation of some kind at that point. And weirdly enough, even though this statistically is a little bit strange, 66%, even more, favor regulation, at least of some kind, at the Casey standard, which tells you what? It tells you that this idea that the actual Roe standard, not saying overturning Roe, 
actually getting into the details and saying what row would mean when you ask them in detail, most Americans actually are in favor of not the Supreme Court, but the states having some level of regulation power in that time period. We're looking at 55 and 66%, depending on when that time period is. And so Democrats are convinced and they keep trying to tell people that the American people are on their side in this. But if you dig into the details, it actually shows the exact opposite. The majority of Americans, at least in effect and practicality, favor the overturning of Roe if they knew what that actually did mean. And even more importantly than this, and this was brought up in the opinion by Justice Alito, even more important than that, it doesn't matter. Because how popular a law or a Supreme Court precedence is, is immaterial to a judge. At least it's supposed to be. Now, in Robert's case, I don't think it actually is. I think that he puts his finger in the wind and decides which way it's blowing and tries to go in that direction. But that's not the way that it's actually supposed to be. Ideally, if you understand legal scholarship, what should happen is that a judge should look at that. He should see whether or not the law is constitutional or whether or not it should be legal. And that's the only thing that should matter to him. It wouldn't matter if 90% of people were against overturning Roe v. Wade. If it was 100% of people, the judges should look at the law itself and say, don't care if everybody disagrees with me, it's unconstitutional. Or it's constitutional, depending on which way they fall on that particular decision. And as it says in the opinion given by Justice Alito, whether or we don't know what effect it's going to have on the country, and it doesn't matter. That's what a good judge looks like. Somebody that doesn't care what everybody thinks of his opinion. He rules based on the evidence in front of him. That's why we have judges in the first place. There would be no point of having a judicial system or a Supreme Court if it was just whatever the majority thinks. Because that's what legislatures are for. Legislatures are supposed to figure out what their constituents want and use their own expertise and vote accordingly. The Supreme Court's not supposed to do that. That's why they have lifetime appointments, because they're not supposed to be swayed by the whims of politics. Now, you can agree or disagree with lifetime appointments if you want to, but whether you do or not, that's the reason they have them is because that's what a judge was always supposed to do. So, that being said, this decision, as I said before, was actually the moderate road. The judges could have, if they wanted to, got together and gone, you know what, we're all pro-life, why don't we just make abortion illegal? They didn't do that. And the reason they didn't do that is because they didn't see the constitutional authority to do so. They looked at the facts, they looked at the evidence and said, well, Roe's wrong, sorry. Whether you agree with it or not, that's what the Constitution says, there's no right to an abortion anywhere in the Constitution. You want to make a constitutional amendment for it? Fine, go nuts. But we, looking at the Constitution as it is now, and looking at the case that is presented before us, it's just not in there. That's the way the cookie crumbles. Another argument that is often used is, and this is a very easy one to dismiss, so it won't take me much time at all. What about rape and incest? So these are, this is a good question if given in the right context, but most of the time it's not a good question. And the reason is because the person making it doesn't actually care about the rape or incest. They're just trying to put that forward to make you look bad. 
because I actually believe that rape and incest are not good reasons to avoid an abortion. However, most of the time when they bring it up, they don't care about that. And the reason that they don't, I'm not saying that they don't care about women that are that have been raped or, or had incest thrust upon them. What I am saying is they're just saying that to justify all abortion, and that doesn't make any sense. So the way to rebut that is ask them, would you be okay with outlawing all abortion that is not rape or incest? And if they say no, and most of them will, then say, well, then let's not bother with that. That's that's a side issue for the time being. Because if that's not the case, then they don't really, that's not the point they're trying to make. It makes no sense to justify all abortions on the grounds of rape and incest, especially when considering that they constitute only about 1% to 2% of all abortions. It makes no sense to make that the rule or the, the reason that you have this thing that is legal. That's an illogical argument. And so the correct way to respond to that is, okay, um, would you be okay with getting rid of all abortions that don't fall within those categories? And if they say no, you know that they're not actually trying to make that argument. If they say yes, if they say, yeah, I think that abortion's horrible, it should just be in cases of rape or incest. All you have to bring up is bad behavior by one person does not justify another. Because if they do take that stance, they probably do care about the life inside the mother. They probably actually do care about the baby. They think that that life has value at some level. Now, rape is something that has personally affected my family. It's horrible. It devastates people. Some people never recover. And frankly, I think it's the only crime that is worse than murder. I think that you should be able to have a punishment beyond the death penalty uh, for rape. But that's, you know, not really the way the legal system works. But my point is, I think that that's the most heinous crime a person can engage in. But no matter how terrible it is, it's not the baby's fault. Baby didn't do anything. Baby didn't ask to be conceived that way. So as wrong and as horrible as that is, you don't take that out on the baby. And there's a lot of reasons from a mental health perspective that shows that it's actually better for the mom if she carries the baby to term and gives birth. Because abortion just piles on the mental health crisis and the mental health nightmare that is having a baby that was raped. I've heard so many people say, or sorry, being raped and having the rapist baby. They'll say, well, she shouldn't have to have the rapist baby. Well, is the baby the the racist? Like, the baby didn't do anything. And on top of that, who says she has to raise it? Put it up for adoption. We've already made that case tonight. The baby didn't do anything wrong. And so you can't hold it accountable for that. And incest is a really weird one because... I assume that when what they're talking about there is it's a incestuous rape. Those are rare, but they do happen. But, I mean, like, why not just throw that in the rape category? Like, I'm not saying that I, I think that it's weird to bring that argument up. I'm saying it's weird to bring it up separate from rape. Like, why wouldn't that just be rape? Because if it is consensual incest, I really don't understand what the purpose of aborting the baby is at that point either. It doesn't really make sense to me. But anyway, so those are some of the uh, the big arguments that are, you know, that, that you have to be able to counter if you're going to have this discussion. And I'm glad that I was able to bring that guide to, to you. But I think what's most important here and the thing that we need to be most aware of is we need to keep doing all we can to help women and children. Because. If we don't continue to do that, even after Roe's been overturned, and even if you live in a state like Alabama, like I assume most of my listeners are right now, even if you live in a state 
where abortion is effectively banned now. Good for you, that's an amazing blessing. But if because of that, we throw our hands over, it's like, yes, we did it, we're done. All right, peace out. Good, good job, everybody. Everyone go home. If that is the case, then literally every single accusation that people made against Christians and saying we don't do enough about the church, we only care about the women, uh, we only care about the babies in the womb, we don't really care about the women involved in these pregnancies. If that's what happens, then they were right. If all this was was a means to get abortion outlawed, and once that happens, the help and the support that Christians are giving women just dries up, then that means we're everything they accused us of. Let's not let that happen. We need to put our arms around these mothers that are in crisis. We need to put our arms around these people that have suffered through the, the turmoil and the evil that is abortion. We need to do the best that we can to support these women, offer help, offer our aid, offer advice, and if nothing else, offer the gospel. And if we do that, then we are actually fulfilling what the Bible asks us to do, to take care of other people. And so I really think that it's important that we keep that in the forefront of our mind, that it's not just about making sure that all 50 states outlaw abortion, because that's very good. Like we do want abortion to be outlawed, but we also want to help the people that would be put in such a, a corner that are filled, they're so trapped and there's no way out that they would consider something as evil and horrible as abortion. Because that's where most of the women are. Even most of the women that are extremely pro-choice and, and the shout your abortion people, there may be some that are so far gone that they don't even like connect the dots there. But there are an awful lot of women that whether they even realize it or not, are carrying around a lot of, of grief and a lot of the, I mean, just to be honest, for lack of a better way to put it, just carrying the weight of their sin. And that's something that we as Christians and we as conservatives need to make sure that we're doing an adequate job of helping them in that process. Because ultimately, if we want the government to do less, we have to be willing to do more. If we really care about small government, conserving the Constitution, and making sure that we have all the liberties that we need, we need to make sure we are using that liberty in a positive way that helps our community to the point to where no one even really sees the need for government to get involved in things anymore. Because the average person, the average Christian, is doing what they can to help anyway. And so why get the government involved? Everything's being taken care of on their own. Now, it's never going to be perfect. East of Eden, there never is anything that, that does. But the point is, we need to do everything we can to make that case so that the government feels less obligated to do things. Most importantly, far more than just getting our political agenda and our smaller government, it fulfills the message of the gospel. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break, and then uh, we're going to be back with Matt Clark, the president of the Alabama Center for Law and Liberty. That's coming up in just a second on Tactics. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. 
And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. My next guest is somebody that you're quite familiar with who is here to discuss what's going on with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, which, of course, our entire show is sort of centered around today. And uh, been on with uh, us a lot is somebody that has a background in constitutional law. And both he and his wife are pro-life activists. Uh, his wife actually was an attorney that worked for a agency specifically on abortion. And he has been working for the Foundation for Moral Law and is currently the president of ALCC. So let's go ahead and bring him on. Matt Clark, thanks so much for being back on the show with us, man. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's always great to have you. We know that uh, you've been on the show several times and are a personal friend of mine. But, you know, putting our professional career aside, like we were both just elated to see what happened Friday. It's It's been a great day for this movement. It has been a great, uh, a long, long time coming. Uh, but before I get into the actual like meat and potatoes of this, just your initial reaction. It was amazing. I think it's by far the United States Supreme Court's finest moments. Um, if you think about some of the opportunities that the Supreme Court has had in the past to end major injustices, um, sometimes there are injustices that they caused, like Brown versus Board of Education. I think there's a good argument that that was the Supreme Court's you know, find this moment because, you know, it, it finally declared that segregation was unconstitutional. Uh, you could argue it was the Supreme Court's fault in the first place because in Plessy versus Ferguson, they gave the green light, but in 1954, they owned us to their mistake and they reversed it. Well, it's kind of the same thing here, except the evil that was remedied was far worse than in segregation. Like, if you were on segregation, it was awful, it was evil, it was unconstitutional, and needed to go. Um, but in terms of how bad and evil it is, I think murder is the worst of the worst. Um, and here, while unfortunately the court's decision in Dobbs did not make um, abortion illegal across the nation, it finally freed up the states to protect life if they so choose to do so. And so um, we're finally seeing the, the end of an era that has resulted in the loss of uh, over 60 million lives, and that is absolutely incredible. So um, from the uh, uh, Supreme Court's uh, early days until now, I think this was the greatest decision of all time. No, I, I couldn't agree more. It was definitely the biggest court decision of my lifetime, which is part of the reason that I just kind of came out of the uh, the shadows to do another show, even though I don't do many of those. And I mean, it's just, it, it is a momentous day. And one of the things that you mentioned is something I actually wanted to ask you about anyway, when it comes to what this Supreme Court decision actually did. One of the criticisms that you're hearing a lot from people on the left, uh, pundits, elected officials, is that this is the Supreme Court forcing their beliefs on the entire country, and uh, many are referring to it with the colloquialism of it's the death of democracy, this is authoritarian fascism, that kind of thing. Uh, but I've read the opinion, or at least not all of it, but I've read most of it, and the introduction, like the very first thing in the opinion is we actually don't think that we can decide this issue which is why we give it back to the states and back to the people. And now you have the ability to do that. So uh, give us a little bit of insight into how all of that works. You nailed it, Caleb. Criticism that this is undemocratic or judicial activism is one of the dumbest things I've ever heard in my life. Um, and I'm sorry if that's not supposed to be, it just is. You know, if you're going to argue that this is undemocratic, court is saying we are literally going to give the people the right to vote on this. That, it doesn't get more democratic than that. 
Um, and as far as opposing the values, the, the court declared absolutely travel beyond the question of when life begins, whether unborn children are people uh, entitled to constitutional protections. They, they, they went full on agnostic on that and instead sent the issue back to uh, people in the states to decide for themselves. So, you know, it's, I, I don't think I've ever seen an instance of people getting more upset over um, the court declaring you travel beyond an issue. Than, than this, and it's, it's just, it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, so getting back to your uh, your original question here, um, you, you, you are correct. So as you know very well, and I'm sure most of your listeners know, the federal government is a government of enumerated powers, and that also uh, goes for uh, the, the specific rights that are protected in the Constitution too. Um, although we have more rights that are not uh, explicitly enumerated um, in the Constitution, uh, the Constitution protects only certain rights that are explicitly spelled out. And in a row, um, what happened was the, the Supreme Court looked at it and said, well, you know, kind of based on the 14th Amendment and maybe the 9th Amendment, although we can see there is no right to abortion explicitly in the Constitution, we think we can kind of find the right to an abortion there. And so because of that, the states do not have the liberty to restrict abortions um, before viability. Is essentially what they held. That's a little bit of an oversimplification, but that's that's generally just a bit. And, and the court kept uh, that core holding in 1992 in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Here, the Supreme Court looked at it and they said, "All right, look, um, if you pick up a copy of the Constitution and read it, there, there is no right to an abortion in there." And when it comes to recognizing rights that are not explicitly in the Constitution. Um, the practice that we go with is we ask whether those rights are deeply rooted in this nation's history and traditions. And there is no serious argument at all that there is such a right rooted very deeply in this nation's history and traditions when it comes to abortion. Um, at the time the 14th Amendment was ratified, which is what you know the, the right to abortion was supposedly based on, um, abortion was outlawed in almost every state. And even coming up to 1973, some, at that, when the court decided to grow, some of the states had loosened up their abortion restrictions, but it was still illegal in most states. And so you, you cannot make a serious argument with a straight face that there is a right to abortion uh, very deeply rooted in this country's history and traditions. So, well, I think that that kind of highlights the difference in those two opinions because Roe, and, and this was part of their opinion, like I'm not just editorializing, part of their opinion was this is very controversial, so we're going to step in and decide it. This decision was essentially, this is very controversial, which means the court doesn't have the right to decide it. We have to give it back to the people. Yeah, basically. I mean, if the Constitution doesn't address it, then the Tenth Amendment applies, which means that the matters is reserved to the states and to the people. Um, you're right that, that that was one thing that uh, the court was trying to do in Roe, and definitely in cases, they were trying to step in and settle a controversial issue. Um, a lot of people, uh, especially Justice Clarence Thomas, who's my favorite justice on the court, he has compared this a lot to the infamous Dred Scott decision, where the court saw that the nation was kind of on the verge of war, that this was a very controversial issue. And instead, they said, well, forget the Missouri Compromise and what the Constitution actually says. We're going to step in and decide this issue. So we decided it. Everybody's happy. Y'all can stop fighting about it. That did not work very well at no. all. And neither did the court trying to step in and solve the abortion issue. So instead now it's saying, okay, um, this is controversial. The Constitution does not clearly answer the question in our opinion. So the people get to talk about it, try to persuade each other to vote on it. That's how this is going to be solved. Yeah, and that really does bring me to, and tell me if my legal analysis is slightly off, 
uh, but I was talking about this just a second ago um, in the earlier segment. What this really does is it's not that it settles the issue. It's just beforehand, the pro-life movement was essentially, they're saying, you can fight this issue, but you have to fight with both hands tied behind your back. Really, all this does is makes it a fair fight. Like pro, pro-life pro people, you can you have the ability to go to your states and try to make this illegal. Pro-abortion people, you have the ability to go to your states and try to make it as legal and as available as possible. And so it's really more of a, we're going to put this on an even playing ground now as opposed to, because, I mean, personally, I think that they showed a ridiculous amount of judicial restraint because I think you actually can make a, I don't know if I have the ability to do it, but I think you actually can make, based on what I've seen, a constitutional recognition of life at conception, but they didn't do that. All they did was look at it and say, uh, we really can't decide, so we're going to let this go back to you. Um, am I correct in that understanding? Yes, absolutely. Caitlin, if you're ever deciding you want to go to law school, let me know. I'd be happy to write you a letter of recommendation. <laughs> Thank you. you. an excellent lawyer. really would. Um, but you, you absolutely nailed it. It's um, So there are a couple of uh, separate but related issues when it comes to this case. The first issue is whether the Constitution recognizes a right to an abortion, and that is a very easy no. It, that, that is easy to answer. The second question is whether the Constitution protects the right to life for the unborn. The two are obviously very related, but they are separate questions. And um, it's very easy. You don't even really need to be a lawyer. All you need to do is be able to read and understand in English, to look at the 14th Amendment and say, it's the most ridiculous thing ever to say that there's a right to an abortion based on what the text actually says. So um, getting rid of Roe and, and shooting down the proposition that the court protects the right to an abortion was a very easy thing to do, and that's what the court did. You have to go a step further if you want to argue that the Constitution actually protects uh, the right to life for the unborn. Now, I, 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 I agree with you. I think there's a good case to be made, and I am among a uh, minority, but a vocal minority of conservative lawyers who think the Constitution actually does require um, the right to life to be protected from the moment of conception. Uh, within that crowd, we have the current Alabama Chief Justice Tom Parker, former Chief Justice Warren Moore, um, Josh Craddock, who's a Harvard grad, he wrote an uh, article in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy that got a lot of attention about five years ago, making this case in detail, and I think he was right. Um, but basically, that argument says this. The Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment says, no state shall deprive to any person within their jurisdiction the equal protection of the law. Now, if unborn children are people, then that means the state may not deny to them equal protection. What does that look like when it comes to abortion? It means that if the state decides everybody's going to be protected from murder, then it can't single out the unborn as a class of people that are not worthy of that protection because that's not equal protection of the law. So the equal protection clause, in my opinion, gives the states two choices, either protect everybody from murder or nobody from murder. Those are the two scenarios in which uh, equal protection is, is met. So um, we Right, and, of- and murder actually is a state law. It's a state issue. The federal government yeah. doesn't enforce that just because they understand that this is something that the states can handle and, and should handle. I mean, it goes back to the 10th Amendment. And so in the same sense, I don't really want the federal government setting murder laws. I, I think that that would be a bad idea just because it makes more sense to let the individual states decide it. But kind of like you were saying, if the individual states do decide that, it's not fair for them to just take one specific class of people and say, you guys aren't protected. I think you, you nailed it. Um, yeah, classically, the right to protect 
um, life, liberty, and property, uh, you know, th those were what we call uh, police powers that are reserved to the states under the 10th Amendment. So, you know, the states have a quintessential power to protect, uh, you know, the public welfare, the public health, the public safety, and the public morals legally. That's what we call the police power doctrine. Mm -hmm. And it, the Supreme Court has affirmed again and again that there is no federal police power. So when it comes to the power to protect the public safety and especially uh, protecting the right to life, that is a matter that has been classically reserved to the states. You don't see, you know, cops, uh, you don't see federal agents out there just prosecuting regular old murder cases. That happens at the state level. Um, so, so you're right. It, 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 with the way our structure set up, it really makes a lot of sense for this to invest at the state level. But what the Constitution does say is, okay, if you're gonna step into that and you're gonna protect people from murder, um, you can't single out you know, uh, a group of people to take that protection away from. They couldn't back in 1868 when you know the black codes were you know singling out black people saying, yeah, they're, they're kind of second class citizens. They don't get the same protections. You know, If you wanna go lynch them, that's fine. You just can't do it to white people. And in 2022, it means that if you're going to protect everybody from murder, you can't single out the unborn and say, oh, yeah, you can go kill them, that's fine, but you can't kill the rest of us. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, that's kind of a good segue into what I wanted to get into is really where do we go from here and what this means for us, because uh, there's plenty of national shows that are going to do this on the federal level. What I really want to focus on for the next couple minutes is what does this mean for Alabama? We do have a trigger law which bans abortion and essentially makes it illegal in the state. So exactly what does that look like? What is going to be the outcome of this Supreme Court decision for Alabama specifically? And uh, if you could kind of dovetail this on the backside of it, a lot of people, especially on the left, are worried that this decision is going to necessitate that women who sought abortions either in the past or from this point forward are going to be tried for murder. Uh, is exactly what does that mean? How does the Alabama law work? And is that a valid concern? So those are excellent questions. Um, you're right that after Dodd, we have to, you know, take a look at where each state individually stands. The good news for Alabama is in 2019, we passed a pro-life law that at that point was the strongest in the nation. Uh, it was after Justice Kavanaugh replaced Justice Kennedy. We knew that the lower courts were going to strike it down. The whole point was to get it up before the U.S. Supreme Court and present a facial challenge to Roe. We, we didn't nibble at the edges of Roe, but we passed a law that you know could only stand if Roe was thrown out. Um, so the same day that the Supreme Court decided Dobbs, which overruled Roe, um, Attorney General Steve Marshall for the state of Alabama um, got the 2019 Alabama law back in force again. Uh, what happened was when we passed that law in 2019, all the pro-abortion, um, pardon more specifically, the abortion clinics in the state sued to have uh, the law enjoined, which means the judge steps in and he tells the attorney general and the law enforcement officers of the state that you can't enforce that law right now because I think it's unconstitutional. Um, that case never made it out of the district court. I, I think what happened was shortly after that COVID hit, that screwed everything up, you know, threw a curveball at everybody. So it didn't make its way through the appeals. Uh, but now that Dobbs has been decided, uh, that the same day, General Marshall filed a motion saying, you know, Judge, you need to lift that injunction because your whole basis for enjoining the law is gone. And Judge Thompson agreed. And even the abortion clinics themselves conceded. Yeah, we have no case anymore after uh, after Dobbs overruled Roe. So uh, the abortion clinic surrendered, the judge lifted the injunction. So now that law is in full force and effect in Alabama. Um, what the law does is that if 
uh, if an abortionist commits an abortion, um, it is punishable by a class A felony, which is punishable by up to 99 years in prison. Um, the law does not prosecute mothers. So even if a woman uh, went to go get you know, an abortion, um, you know, and, and she consented, and uh, the, the, the unborn child was killed with her, with her knowledge and consent, she could not be prosecuted because the law has not made it a criminal offense as to her. And, and, and while we can argue about whether, you know, that's completely just, I, I do think there, there is a, uh, something to be said for women being under pressure, either being strong-armed by their, you know, their boyfriends to go get it done, and uh, being duped by these doctors that are supposed to get um, informed consent, but at the end of the day, the reality is there's no baby that will kill for money, all right? So that's why we're going after the abortionists, but not the mothers. Um, there are two exceptions to that law. Number one is if it's necessary to save the life of the mother. And while I hate that, I mean, I, personally, I think until technology gets to the point where, you know, it can eliminate that issue, um, I, I can understand why in the very, very, very rare case where the mother is going to die, um, it lets at least save the life of the mother. Uh, I don't think anybody has a real problem with that. The second one, though, this is what I'm concerned about. Um, there is a mental health exception for the mother. Now, that is that mental health exception is defined. I can't remember off the top of my head all of the, you know, criteria that are used, but but it's higher than just oh, it stresses me out the thought of having a baby, and you know, so I need an abortion. Um, which is encouraging because there's a lot of states where basically all you have to do is find a left-leaning psychologist or counselor of some kind and they'll just rubber stamp your abortion. So uh, that has been the case because, you know, they may not have restrictions on early abortion, but they had restrictions on late-term abortion. And, and basically it was kind of like the marijuana laws in uh, California. Like if, if you want it, you can get it. Yeah, bingo. That's that's exactly um, George Killer. Pardon me, George Tiller, the late term abortionist from Kansas uh, back in the day. That's exactly how he operated. Was you know Kansas law would um, only allow you to do a late term abortion if you could get multiple doctors to sign off on it. So he contracted with uh, some doctors that were just radically pro abortion, just like he was, who would rubber stamp you know all of the applications, and then he he could kill uh, you know any babies that made it into a late term pregnancy. Um, so you, you, you're right. If, if this is not tight, then that's exactly what's going to happen here with this mental health exception. Um, what the legislature was trying to get at was this. They, they, they were concerned that in cases where the mother is so mentally unstable because of this that she may actually commit suicide, then kind of like the cases of um, the, the, the life of the mother, it's like, look, you know, if, if this isn't going to happen, we're going to have two deaths where one is going to be inevitable anyway, so let's just go ahead and let her get the abortion. Um, I don't think that is, uh, I, I don't think that part of the law is good. And despite the, the safe, well, number one, I think it's, it's just, you know, not just, I mean, just mental disability is, is, is not a reason to kill an unborn child. It's just not. And then second, kind of like you talked about, I'm, I'm afraid that the abortionists in the state are going to get together and just get the requisite number of doctors to sign off on just about anybody that comes through the door. Um, and then they can have the abortion. So, um, well, I actually have a third concern too, because the dirty little secret that people who are on the pro-abortion side of the argument don't talk about and don't want people to know about is that there are actually very significant mental health repercussions that come with getting an abortion. And so the very mother that may actually kind of be on the fringes, I understand why we obviously wouldn't want her to commit suicide. I mean, that's, that's obvious that that would be the worst possible outcome. 
but if we have somebody that already is kind of on the fence with the, the mental health issues and then they wind up killing their baby and, and feeling that remorse and regret that typically comes with it with a lot of women, even women that happen to think abortion is perfectly morally acceptable, then we could actually make her mental health worse and make her more likely to commit suicide. And so, uh, you know, that, that's an uncommon result from abortion, but it does happen. And if we're talking about people that are already their mental health is sort of questionable, that could very well be something that that, that legal exception actually drives them toward. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, Caleb. I mean, that, that it, we see similar arguments sometimes in um, the, the cases where, you know, people argue, like, if, you know, if, if kids aren't allowed to switch their genders, get surgery, and, um, you know, take, you know, puberty blocks, are going to commit suicide. You know, the thing is, in, in that case, though, it's not addressing the root of the problem. And by letting them engage in that, it's actually going to drive them more towards suicide and problems like that than, than it would have been if you had not allowed them to do it. So it's the same thing in abortion cases. Um, because, look, you know, at the end of the day, you and I are both Christians, and we know that ultimately the, the root of the problem here is spiritual. Um, and when, okay, when, when you partake in killing an innocent human being, your conscience has a way of eating you up. And, 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 you know, in a way, God designed us to do that because it's a sign that, all right, you are in trouble, but that's where, you know, when you recognize that, that's where the cross comes into play. Um, but you're not going to come to the cross and find forgiveness in Jesus Christ unless you first acknowledge that there's a problem. Now, what we absolutely don't want to have happen is post-aborted women who wind up, whose guilt winds up eating them up to the point where instead of coming to repentance, they go into the ultimate act of despair and take their own lives. So, listen, by the way, if there are any of you out there today that are listening there in that scenario, what we want to tell you here is this. You don't have to pay that price because Christ already paid it for you. Yes, just like all the rest of us, that, you know, all, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If, if it did take part in abortion, yes, that was a sin. But there's no sin that the cross of Jesus Christ cannot forgive. Okay, Christ shed his blood in your place so that you wouldn't have to. So uh, forgiveness of sins is available in his name. You don't have to work for it. It's by grace through faith. And if you need to be baptized, heck, even Caleb and I would be willing to volunteer to do that ourselves. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Both of us. So, yeah. so we, you know, that, that's one thing that um, uh, the, uh, the, the pro-abortionists, you know, argue a lot is you don't care about women. But for a lot of us that have been involved in this fight, We've not only been trying to stop abortions, but we have been trying to reach out to post-abortive women and, 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 and help them find redemption and healing and forgiveness so that they don't do something like that and wind up you know, beating themselves up or committing suicide or something like that. That is not at all the outcome that we want. And we are very much in favor of supporting Christian and pro-life ministries that helps these women find redemption and healing. Well, and that's the thing, too. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure I could find somebody out there, but I personally, with the people that I work with, and I work with a lot of pro-life people, as you do, uh, I don't know anybody that their goal in this was always so we, we can prosecute women that have had an abortion. In fact, my next guest is uh, somebody that falls into that category. And so th there is forgiveness there. There is redemption. And uh, it's true that from a legal perspective, and you know this better than I do, even though I know you're not a criminal lawyer, uh, the law requires some kind of uh, process to go through, or it has requirements for a punishment to reconcile. Uh, it wouldn't do this with women and abortion in this case, as you just discussed. Uh, but the thing about the gospel is that isn't part of the process. The, the process was already taken care of. And so with us, it's just coming to Christ, asking forgiveness and obeying him. And that's, that's where we come down on that. But uh, yeah, so as far as that goes, 
I guess the one last follow-up question uh, that I would have is when it comes to the law, are there anything, is there anything that we as Alabamians who already kind of have a, a ban in place need to do? Is there any legislation that we should be pushing for with our representatives or uh, other people that we may elect? That's an excellent question, Caleb. So the first thing I think we need to do is hold our legislators' feet to the fire because it, it's strange. The, the, there are a fair amount of feckless Republicans uh, in Montgomery. Um, there, there are some good ones, but it, a lot of the people that voted for that 2019 pro-life law, um, when they saw the possibility that Roe might get thrown out, uh, they started speaking, oh, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, maybe we were too harsh in, uh, in that. Maybe we need to start considering exceptions like rape or incest or the health of the mother. So I think the first thing we need to do is pick up the phones, call the representatives and say, don't you dare lighten up any restrictions on that law. Um, we, we don't need to be more liberal with this. And then the second thing I think we need to do is uh, we need to push them to reconsider that mental health exception because um, for, for anyone out there that's Lord of the Rings fan, uh, Lord of the Rings fans, uh, think, think of our Alabama law like Helms Deep. It is solid, it is strong. But Helms Deep has one weakness, you know, it has one spot where it can be blown up and, you know, all the abortions can get back in through it. And I think we need to tighten up uh, that restriction of the first available opportunity. All right. And uh, one other one that's just kind of a follow up and sort of along that same line of where do we go from here? You know, this decision technically was a 6-3, but realistically, if you read what Robert's concurrence said, it's really more of a 5-1-3. Uh, because it, he makes very clear that what he would have tried to do is split the baby, and I don't mean that as a pun, considering the subject matter. Um, he was going to try to split the baby to where, uh, well, we don't actually get rid of Roe, but we do agree that the Mississippi case, that they came down on the right side of that, and so he was going to try to do something to keep Roe in place, which means that we're kind of on the border here, especially with a Democrat president in place. God forbid one of the conservative justices would, would pass away or have to resign or something like that. Um, if that does take place, would it be a kind of thing where, where we would basically have Roe or something similar to it recodified? Like how, how, how do, I don't really know what we could do in that situation, just more of a, what would that look like? That's an excellent question, too. Um, you, you're right that we had five conservatives that agreed to overrule Roe. Roberts agreed that he wanted to keep the Mississippi 15 week law, but he, he didn't want to quite overrule Roe just yet because he didn't think it was necessary in that case. Um, so, so you're right. I mean, you, you could look at it and say we're, we're one vote away from undoing all the progress that we just made. Um, I think the good news is that, let, let's say, God forbid, one of the five conservatives, um, you know, leaves the bench either due to death or retirement or disability or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, even if President Biden was able to place his, appoint his replacement with a, uh, a pro-choice justice, um, I do not think Dobbs would be overruled. And, and here's why. Roberts, um, he has a pattern of, of you know, dissenting in cases where you know, he disagrees with. But once a precedent is set, he will follow it. Uh, he, he's done that multiple times before, so he... So, so let's say, you know, uh, a case comes um, a couple of years from now with, with the Biden replacement from one of the conservatives and, um, you know, the pro board say, don't follow Dobbs. Well, Roberts would probably actually disagree with that. And he'd probably put out a special record and say, well, I thought we overrode a little bit prematurely, but now that we've done it, it's a precedent. 
And if you want us to go back against that precedent, you got to walk through all the factors for, for whether a precedent ought to be overruled. And at that point, I don't think you can meet your burden. So I think Roberts would side with us if, let's say, two years from now, uh, Dobbs got challenged. Um, but well, that's kind of situationally good to hear, mm-hmm. but it's it's very bad in the sense that Roberts might be the only person in America that actually believes in precedent. And <laughs> I'm serious. Like, uh, I, I don't believe in precedent. I think it's ridiculous and silly. If, if the law is good and constitutional, you ought to uphold it. If it's bad, I don't care how long the precedent's been in place, you get rid of it. Uh, but, but the liberals, you know, they're kind of the same way. And frankly, I think they're right on that. Like, the second that this became precedent, all of a sudden, none of the liberals cared about precedent anymore. So... <laughs> Um, Roberts might be the only person that actually legitimately thinks that precedent is important. I, I, I don't know of anybody else really off the top of my head that does. Yeah, there, there are a few of them up there. I think, you know, Alito also believes in it, um, but he's got more of a consistent framework for how to decide when to follow it versus when not to. Whereas Roberts, um, I don't know, he's... Roberts is professionally torn. He, he's, he's not a liberal at heart. I think he is a conservative at heart, but he's compromised too much by the desire to protect the Supreme Court's image. So, But I, I think it's that part in particular that makes him more inclined to follow precedent than, um, than, than his colleagues because you know, he, he can decide to look out for the court more than the Constitution sometimes. But in this case, that would actually work in our favor because if he's trying to look out for the court, he's like, well... Regardless of whether I agree with that past decision, we made it and we got to stick by it unless you can make a compelling case that we ought to throw it out. Right. Basically, if you like the status quo, then Roberts winds up being on your side. And this is one of the, I mean, for a long time, uh, the status quo was not on our side because Roe was in place. Now, technically, the status quo is on our side. So, uh, but yeah, thank you for that analysis. And I guess we'll go ahead and wrap it up here. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to just throw in here? Because uh, I, I got to tell you, I'm I'm pretty ecstatic about this. Like, I haven't been this excited about a Supreme Court case ever. Yeah, me neither. It, it absolutely is the Supreme Court's finest moment. Um, so I'd say, you know, thank God, praise God. And look, I, I, feel, I feel terrible about saying this. If this was just plain old Matt Clark in my personal capacity, I would just walk away. But, but as the president of the organization, I have to make a pitch here. Um, we were in a lot of the Dobbs case. Um, we filed an amicus brief uh, at the time where um, a lot of people didn't know whether the court was just going to push back on the viability standard or whether they're going to throw it out altogether. We filed a brief arguing that they should throw it out altogether, and we laid out a path for them to do it. And I'll tell you, I think the Supreme Court followed the blueprint that we presented about 90% of the way. So that was that was pretty good. So um, folks listening, if you guys are looking to support an organization that gets in on fights like this and who the Supreme Court has proved right uh, today, they also proved this right in the gun rights case and the Coach Kennedy case today, um, please uh, consider giving to the Alabama Center for Law and Liberty. Our website is alabamalawandliberty.org. Come check us out. If you like what you see, consider getting on board with us. Absolutely, because like I was saying earlier in the interview, this fight isn't over. We've got a long way to go. I mean, this is really just the start of the fight on uneven playing ground. And so uh, legal organizations like yourself, that's going to be essential going forward, just as they were in, in getting this decision. All right. Well, I appreciate it, brother. Always good to talk to you. And uh, we will talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Caleb. Always great to be with you. <laughs> Thank you. All right. That is Matt Clark. He is the president of ACLL. So if you do have any interest in donating, be sure to get in touch with them. Uh, That's going to be it for this interview. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in just a minute on Tactics. 
Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. And welcome back, everybody, to Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thanks so much for being with us on our program for a momentous day, our big Roe versus Wade. Roe is finally done. It is over, and that is our big abortion special. My next guest uh, is going to be Robin Blessing, and she is somebody that is on the front lines when it comes to this fight. You know, you have a lot of people that are activists, do protesting. This is somebody that is on the front lines when it comes to abortion, uh, and, and not by being somebody that necessarily is uh you know necessarily marching or something like that just somebody that uh, shows people the truth and and helps women get free ultrasound so without further ado let's go ahead and meet her robin blessing thanks so much for being on the program thank you so much for having me caleb yeah it's it's great to have you i actually met you not too long ago when you were speaking here at faulkner university and you have a really interesting backstory and i think that that might actually give the audience kind of a better feel for what got you involved in this issue in the first place and why it's so important to you. So if you would share a little background about your story. Wow. Well, up until 2016, I was actually uh, pro-choice. I thought that um, everybody should butt out of everybody else's business, that abortion was a woman's choice. And I actually had an abortion in 1988. And I know that from talking to different people that people think that it's all young teenage girls that are having abortions. But mm -hmm. I was um, in my thirties, had a five-year-old son, was married and had just moved to Alabama. And it just, I just couldn't see myself being pregnant. And I always tell people, I never ever thought the word baby. I just told my husband, I cannot be pregnant. We had only been in Alabama like about six weeks with the new business. So I looked in the, back then it was in the phone book. I looked in the phone book got the number, we went down there. Um, and I remember asking the lady at the time that they were doing whatever pre-op stuff, I don't remember at all, but I said, I caught this early enough, right? Like it's, I'm gonna take Tamiflu or something. Right, exactly. Yeah. And she said to me, oh, we don't make those kind of judgments. So I had the abortion, it was a horrible experience, but I do remember leaving there feeling relieved, I did. Mm. And so, Fast forward 28 years later, I'm working as a secretary in labor and delivery. And um, this doctor, Dr. Matthew Phillips comes in and starts, I've, I've known him for four years now working together. And he said, what kind of business did you ever, uh, what kind of ministry did you ever do? And believe it or not, I was a children's minister um, at a church on staff for 14 years. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing I want to say to everybody about abortion. Nobody, if you don't talk about it, then women think that it's, fine or they may think it's the unpardonable sin but you know if nobody talks about it nothing's ever done so anyway he starts telling me he says i want you to come work on my ultrasound bus come volunteer and now i'm i'm having to 28 years later tell this man that um something i've never told anybody i said well i said i've had an abortion and uh i started crying i i didn't even know i felt sad about it um, and he said, oh, Robin, God will take that sin. And, and right there, I can't remember anything else he said, because I'm thinking, what do you mean sin? 
nobody in my church ever talked about abortion. No, I've been in church my whole life. Nobody ever talked about sin. And um, so I agreed, my husband and I agreed to go look at the ultrasound bus the next night. Mm -hmm. And when uh, I stepped up on that bus, there's a big screen TV in the front and the back where we project the ultrasounds. And when they're doing what they were doing that day, which was like marketing, showing the bus around, um, they had a loop of ultrasounds from Dr. Phillips' office. And I stepped up and saw that nine-week baby, and I said, oh, Father God, what did I do? Because nobody had to tell me it was wrong at that state, at that point. I saw that baby. And uh, 28 years before, they weren't doing an ultrasound before you had right. abortion. So now, uh, well, now uh, abortion is outlawed in Alabama, but until last Friday, the rule was you had to have an ultrasound before you could have an abortion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I tell people, you can't unsee it. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. The truth is right there. Well, you know, that's such something that's so important to uh, women when you look at the statistics and whether or not they decide to go through an abortion. I believe it's somewhere between 80 and 90 percent of women that once they see that ultrasound, if they actually see their baby there in their womb, they decide not to go through with it. And so that's why it's interesting. You, you hear people on the other side of the aisle constantly talk about abortion and say, well, ju we just want it to be safe. We want to follow the science, all these taglines. But I mean, there's nothing more scientific medically than having an ultrasound and, and seeing what's in there. And that's the thing. We want women to be able to make informed decisions. And so I never understood why people on the pro-abortion side, regardless of what uh, they felt about whether abortion should be illegal or not, why they wanted the woman to be kept in the dark, why they didn't want her to see what was actually going on inside her own body. Right. That's that's such a huge part of what we do, because you're exactly right. Eighty nine percent of women who see their own baby on ultrasound will choose to parent, even if they were abortion determined. And, you know, we're not on the ultrasound bus that I work on. We are not trying to uh, judge people or convince them or tell them they're wrong. We just show them that ultrasound and we believe the Holy Spirit does the work because like I said, when you see it and you know that's your baby, um, the thing about being pregnant is, is that you don't, you know, I think you're like, I can't remember, I wanna say 15, 16, 17 weeks along before you can feel your baby kick. And so, you know, you can convince yourself it's nothing, but we can see the baby, you know, five or six weeks, we can show them their baby, see the heartbeat, hear the heartbeat. And so that's when you know, this is for real now. Right. You don't have to give a lot of explanation or do, I mean, really, you know, it is just showing them the truth, showing them what is going on. And it's as simple as that. You know, I'm a minister and my policy is always, um, if I can explain a theological concept, that's good, but I'd a lot rather just let somebody read it in the Bible themselves. And so this is the same kind of idea, just show people the truth and they will figure it out. That's exactly right. And we, you know, often on the bus, we'll have women say, oh my gosh, it's got a head. It, it has a head. It, it There's a leg, you know, mm -hmm. you think that in this day and age with, you can see anything on the internet that people would know, but they don't know. No. And, uh, you know, and at the abortion clinics before, they were not showing them the ultrasound, even though they had to have one, they would turn the screen away and tell them, you know, we recommend you don't look. Well, of course you recommend you don't look if 89% right. of people change their mind. Well, yeah, I mean, that would be like Taco Bell showing you how their meat is made. Like if they look, they're not buying the product. That's right. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, you know, I, 
this is so interesting to me because of course my initial reaction to the news that roe v wade was overturned and, and casey was overturned and that this is going to be taken back to the states was i mean first of all just thank god that everything like yeah. this is is finally uh come to a head and and this is a not not a total victory but a a big win in the column for those that are supporters of the issue of life but then my second thought was how are people like miss robin like what are they going to do now does the ultrasound bus go away like what is the next step for you guys right well our mission statement says we use the power of ultrasound to serve women save babies and share jesus and just because roe has been overturned doesn't mean that there's not going to be unplanned crisis pregnancies mm. the women are there we've just got to work a little harder to find them but I had um, one of my staff members who's awesome on all this. She looked up the numbers for me. Since we started in 20, we started uh, December 27th of 2016 in Montgomery. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were only going out a couple days a week. And now we're five days a week, um, even looking at Saturdays now. But anyway, she told me that in front of, we've seen 5,085 women as of the end of June. Uh, in, I'm sorry, the end of May of this year. Of those 5,085, 920 of them were in front of the abortion clinic. That mm. means that 82% of the people we're seeing are out in the community anyway. Yeah. You know, so we go uh, on a campus of Alabama State University. We go on, right now they're on Atlanta Highway. We go to Coliseum Boulevard. We're over on Carmichael Road. Anywhere that we can, where women gather, where we're more likely to see them you know and so we're going to keep doing exactly what we do um we aren't going to find well actually we were parked in front of the abortion clinic this morning and saw four women this morning mm -hmm. so some people just know that we park there and will just come to us but everybody we meet is not necessarily abortion minded but everybody we meet isn't going to tell us either <laughs> so, well yeah yeah but we don't see women who have already been to a doctor so we're seeing women who for sure need prenatal care who need somebody to love on them. And we also share the gospel with them. So it's a really awesome opportunity for us to, to um, just show them that somebody cares, connect them with community resources and share the gospel if they're open to it. Well, I'm so glad that that was your answer because the thing is there have been accusations and I'm sure you're familiar with this. It's been, this has been an argument for years now. Well, you don't really care about women. You don't really care about babies. You just care about babies before they're born. After they're born, you don't care about them. And, I said, as soon as this happened, and I was talking to some friends of mine, I was like, if crisis pregnancy centers and other services like the, the ones you're associated with go away, then that proves their point. That, that proves that really the only reason we were doing this was to stop abortion, and we don't really care about the people that we're helping. Um, and, and so I'm so glad to hear that you guys are going to be able to continue your work on that. I actually think we'll meet more women because they won't be going to the abortion clinic for advice that won't be, they won't be open. And so they'll be able to come to us and we can tell them the truth, commit. And there's so many churches and agencies and nonprofits who are wanting to step out and help women, but if they don't know about it, it's like they don't exist to these women. So that's our job is to connect them with the pregnancy centers, with places like Agape and Lifeline and Catholic Social Services. There's just so many different places that wanna help. There really are, and I'm really glad to see that you guys are continuing in that. Uh, one thing that I wanted to ask, and if you don't mind me getting a little too personal, if you if I am, just tell me to back off. Um, but as somebody that actually had an abortion, 
and and somebody that at the time didn't think there was anything wrong with it, had no moral scruples about it, and, and it wasn't until years later realized uh, what had actually happened. How do people that I think are genuinely of goodwill and, and want to be able to help women, like how do you start that conversation with a woman convincing her that that is something that, that she needs to reconsider if she has had an abortion and, and let her know that um, you don't hate her or don't think that she's going to hell and there's nothing she can be uh, she, she can do to be redeemed. How do you start that conversation? Well, of course, I started by telling my story. Mm -hmm. I, 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 there's, I can't remember a time when I've ever told my story and somebody hasn't walked up to me and said me too. So I guess if this hasn't been your experience, I hope it's not. You could share, hey, I heard this woman saying this because I promise you they're hurting. They're hurting. It's a wound that does not go away. And I, I, I was talking to a group of pastors and I said, you know, when you meet women who have suicidal thoughts or who have all different kinds of problems, very often when you get down to the bottom of it, they've had an abortion and they're grieving and nobody talks about it. And if you don't talk about it, the enemy has so much power. And so um, it's like it's like if you cut your arm really deeply and it's bleeding and you put a pretty top on top of it, it's still going to seep through into everything else. Mm. And that's until you deal with with the aftermath of it, until you understand that God's grace is right there for you, that forgiveness is there. Um, you're going to suffer. And it's not just women, it's men too who have paid for these abortions or who, whose girlfriend, partner, whatever, um, went ahead and did it without their, you know, without their consent. But they feel, I, I have a driver on one of our buses who told me I paid for two of these. You know, I've mm. seen men weep. So the, the solution is to be able to talk about it because when you bring it out in the open, it takes away, you know, the power that the enemy has. And then the other thing is, uh, pregnancy centers offer abortion healing classes, and that's something that's really good. They're not really crowded because it takes a long time for somebody to get to the point where they're willing to talk about it, but there really are. I went through one once all this happened, and it's really helpful. It is. Well, you know, my last guest, Matt Clark, who's uh, somebody that is a really well-versed in constitutional law, one of the things that he and I got into is in the Alabama law, there actually is a provision that allows for abortion in case of mental illness. And I think that that came from a good intention, but bad execution, uh, wherein their whole mentality was, well, if we think that the woman is suicidal, we definitely want her to be able to get an abortion so that um, she will be able to, like she won't commit suicide or it won't hurt her mental health. And, and as I was telling him, I think kind of the exact opposite is true. Um, that we would just exasperate an already bad situation if we allowed that to go through. And I wanted to get your reaction to that. Well, my niece is a um, nurse practitioner, actually. And she told me that one of the first questions they ask women who are suicidal is, have you had an abortion? Um, so I, I think that says it all. I mean, it just permeates every bit of you because eventually you're going to come to the understanding of what you've done. That's just, it just happens. And then you start to, you know, think about what if, what if, what if, and you feel the shame and, you know, who am I going to tell? They're going to judge me. So, no, he's he's wrong. I just have to say he's wrong. You know, I mean, why? why kill well, he wasn't agreeing with it. He was just saying that's the premise of the law. But Yeah, yeah, the, the law is wrong. Okay, I'll, yeah. <laughs> I'll put him off the hook there. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean it's it's a really really serious thing that dogs you you know i always tell people the enemy 
tempts you to do it and then he dogs you the rest of the life your life for doing it you know and so but it's good to know that god's grace covers that mm -hmm. and that there is an answer in the blood of jesus and so um you know but but again women have to have someone to come alongside them and tell them hey you know we're for you and so it just out of curiosity, is that what it usually takes with a, a woman is just to have some kind of support system, some kind of support group? Is is that like how, how you came to, to peace with everything that has happened in your past? Well, first of all, I think you have to face it. You know, like I said, I was mm -hmm. lying to myself and saying it didn't matter. But the second he talks to me, I burst into tears in the hospital hall, you know, so obviously it was there. Um, I had a very God had just prepared me so well because for three years before all this happened with Dr. Phillips, I had been watching a TV preacher, which is not something I usually do, but his whole, his, uh, his whole premise was God's grace. And I really learned about God's grace. And when you can apply that to yourself, and then, like I said, I went to first choice and went to healing classes and um, talked to women who had been through it. And I think, you know, like anything that anybody has been through in their life, if you deal with somebody else, who has gone through the same thing, you know, you have that simpatico thing, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, them. yeah, that uh, certainly imparts you with a level of sympathy. Uh, overall, how many women would you say that you've has this organization that you're with and, and showing them the ultrasounds? How many has it saved? I mean, I know you may not have an exact stat on that, but maybe oh, a guesstimation. Counted all the time. Okay, good, good. <laughs> We know, we, what I say, we know of 301 women who told us they were going to have an abortion and then changed their mind when they saw their baby or not necessarily on the bus that they saw it. They, sometimes they leave crying, you know, but we follow up and follow up and follow up until we get them connected with community resources or until they just quit answering our phone, you know? And so I say that we know of, because I've had this experience twice where women have come up to me with their babies and said, your bus saved my baby you guys saved my baby and i say well jesus saved your baby but i'm so excited you know <laughs> and our people on the bus didn't know you know so people women don't always tell all their business to everybody you know but we know of 301 and we know of 175 professions of faith since we started too so that's really that exciting up until the last of last may well, you know, it's funny, your explanation there kind of sounded like what I usually say when I'm performing a marriage ceremony. I actually say in the ceremony is like, I'm not marrying you. God's marrying you. I'm That's just, right. I'm just standing here. That's all and saying That's some right. stuff. That's it. Uh, but, uh, but yeah. So uh, with all of that, once a woman has seen her, her baby on your bus, and I guess now the option's kind of taken away, but opted to, to keep her baby and, and save her baby's life. What are the options then and what are the next steps that people can do to help them when they're in that situation? Well, let me just say this. The option's not really taken away because now what's happening is 54% of all the abortions done now are pill, abortion pill, um, mm. pills, taking them. This is so horrible. They, they, they market it as at-home abortions. Okay, if you're a woman and you have ever been in labor, the last thing you want to do is put yourself in labor by yourself at home with no epidural. That's what's happening and delivering a baby wherever you happen to be. Um, but they don't tell the women this and they're ordering these online. So no doctor, local doctor is involved at all. And the reason we know this is we're starting to see women in the emergency room coming in hemorrhaging. So um, mm -hmm. 
there's that. And then there's also what they're calling tourism abortion, where you would go to another state. So that's possible. But most what we're really finding is, is that when a woman first finds out that she's pregnant, and if you're talking to somebody who's scared and pregnant, say, just go look, just go talk to them, see what they have to say. Because people are always surprised by the support that's available in the community. I mean, the churches that have stepped up, the, the, the pregnancy centers are wonderful. They walk the women through. And every woman that we meet, we refer to a pregnancy center. So we want to, and there's five local ones here. So um, it's, it's good to connect them. If, if there is somebody that's listening and is either considering an abortion or maybe has a family member that is considering an abortion, something along those lines, uh, how would they get in touch with your organization and, and maybe find some resources to help them reconsider that decision? Well, our number is 334-221-8166. And our website is I-C-U-G-U-M-P, icugump.com. And you can just go on there. You'll see our, uh, you see our schedule. You don't need an appointment to come see us. It's first come, first serve. You just walk on the bus. Um, and I promise you there will be no judgment, but there will be women there who, you know, would love to help you. And, and many of them have been through the situation that you're in right there. So we'd love to help you. So that's, that's it. I see you, G-U-M-P, I see you, gump.com. All right. And I always end every interview that I do with this because, you know, sometimes as an interviewer, I can't always anticipate everything. Is there anything that our audience should know, anything that you would like to tell them uh, that I might not have thought to ask about? I would like to tell people that your audience that in the United States, one in four women will have an abortion before the age of 45. That's in your church, in your office, in your school, in your family. And they're hiding it because they're ashamed. And so it would be good to be able to start the conversation and without all this, you know, woman's rights or whatever, her right is to know, to know where she stands and what her, op what her options are. That's what I really feel. And, and so I would just like you to know that it's everywhere. And as long as we keep quiet about it, it'll still be shameful. We need to bring it out and help them. Well, thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. Uh, you're welcome back on the program anytime. Just let me know. I appreciate it, Caleb. Thank you for inviting me. All right. Thank you. You have a good one. That is Robin Blessing of ImageClear Ultrasound. And if you want, you can always just skip back a couple of minutes to check the information, which uh, we will be including that also in the description in the video below if you do want to get in touch uh, with ImageClear Ultrasound. So thank you so much to her for being generous with your time. And we will be back in just a minute on Tactics. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. All right, welcome back everybody. And for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, I had to do this one because I love it when you watch people on the left and it's it's so hilarious to watch. It's like they can't actually hear themselves. It's crazy. But sometimes you run into people that are so swept up and so engrossed in their own ideology. Like they're so enslaved to it, they can't think critically about it. 
and they think everything, regardless of what it is or what the merits of it actually are, confirmed their already predetermined belief. So like a great example of this that we did on a daily dose of stupid, I think it actually wound up being one of my top five daily doses of stupid, or maybe it was just an honorable mention, but you remember a while back, Ibram X. Kendi, who is the guy who's been out perpetrating critical race theory and is one of the national leaders on black liberation theology and all that stuff. So you remember that he tweeted out something that showed that college kids that were white were actually lying about their ethnicity to try to get a leg up in college admissions and tweeted it out trying to say that this proved what he had been saying when actually the exact opposite was true. It was disproving the things that he had been saying about white privilege and how white people have all the advantages. But he's so engrossed in his ideology, he didn't even see it. He didn't even think, maybe there's a thing that might point out some flaws in my theory. And so kind of the same thing has happened here. And of course, since this is the abortion special, it's, it's regarding abortion. The Washington Post put out a piece the other day and they it's almost like they didn't read their own article. And the thing that's so funny about this is this had to have gone through multiple different levels, but everybody at the Washington Post is so deeply entrenched in the pro-abortion movement that nobody read this and was like, aren't the details of this story kind of disproving the things we're trying to say? And I'm not exaggerating here. The details, the pictures, the headline, everything about this article screams pro-life to the point that there are one or two sentences that are telltale signs that they were trying to make it a pro-abortion article. But if you, and I'm not I'm trying not to be overly generous or, or uh, oversell it, but really you could change maybe three, four, five sentences in this article. And this is a very long article. It's at least three or four times longer than the average WAPO article. You could change like maybe three to five sentences in this whole article and put it on Life News, and you would not be able to tell the difference. Like, it would just look like a pro-life story to you. Um, like I said, there are a couple sentences in there that kind of portray that they're trying to paint this in a bad light, but maybe they just couldn't. Maybe they couldn't find out a way to wire work it, but I really do think that the utter lack of self-awareness just finally caught up to them. And since I've already been making a lot of pro-life arguments, I'm not going to, like, rebut everything that they say, but I do want to go through this article really quickly, and I'm going to read most of the article just because some of the points it's making, the tone deafness just jumps off the page. So let's go ahead and look at this uh, abortion article from the Washington Post. And like I said, even the headline portrays a pro-life stance, even though they're trying to be anti-life. This Texas teen wanted an abortion. She now has twins. Again, if you saw that on Life News, you would not be able to tell that that was originally not a Life News story. And it tells the story of Brooke Alexander, who did find out that she was pregnant two days before the Texas abortion ban took place. And you can see there with the picture, that's her changing one of the babies, uh, beautiful babies, The her, her husband or future husband, I guess. Well, I guess now he is her husband because they had the wedding ceremony, but um, the father is back there watching. She's changing the babies. And so throughout this article, it's going to try to make the case that this woman's life is now wrecked and ruined and it's it's she's far worse off now than she was if she had been able to get rid of the babies but really if you read the details of the story it kind of tells the exact opposite so let's go ahead and jump into this corpus christi texas brooke alexander turned off her breast pump at 604 p.m and brought two fresh bottles of milk over to the bed 
where her three-month-old twins lay flat on their backs, red-faced and crying. Running on four hours of sleep, the 18-year-old tried to feed both babies at once, holding Kendall in her arms while she tried to get Olivia to feed herself. Her bottle propped up by a pillow, but the bottle kept slipping and the baby kept wailing. And Brooke's boyfriend, Billy High, wouldn't be home for another five hours. Please, fussy girl, Brooke whispered. She peeked outside the room just big enough for a full-size mattress and realized that she had barely seen the sun all day. The windows were covered by blankets pinned up with thumbtacks to keep the room cool. Brooke rarely ventured outside the rest of the house. Billy's dad had taken them in when her mom kicked them out, and she didn't want to get in his way. So real quickly here, just a, a quick analysis of what's going on here. Um, again, it's going to try to portray this in a, a bad light. And, you know, to be fair, what she's going through there is a rough time. That is a stressful and frustrating day, but they act as though that that's going to completely outweigh the fact that she has two beautiful children that she takes care of. There are women that would kill for this. I mean, yeah, they may not like the four hours of sleep, and yeah, they may not always like having to care for the babies at all times, but this is what little girls dream about. Most little girls, when they're, they're little, they, they want to be married and they want to have kids. Now, there are some exceptions to that, sure, and it's not like every woman has to do that. But the point is, they try to portray this as like, this is the worst thing that could have ever happened to someone, and how dare Republicans be against abortion because this is what they've subjected her to. And you're reading this and you're like, okay, she's having a rough day. It's not that big a deal. <laughs> it really isn't. Uh, and they, they try to do this the whole time. They're, they're trying to overemphasize the negative, but really most of it is extraordinarily positive. And as bad as it is to have to deal with some of the things that she's dealing with, that's just normal life stuff. It's not like some kind of great tragedy. I mean, good gracious, if I could, four hours of sleep is kind of normal for me and I don't even have kids. Well, I mean, I do have kids, but they're not my kids. <laughs> I have 140 college students. But anyway, my point in all of that is, this is not like wildly outside the norm. Maybe it's wildly outside the norm for the 20-something the teeny boppers that are riding for WAPO, but it's definitely not uh, for, for, for this lady. So uh, they try to make this case, but they just kind of fall on their face here. So let's go ahead and look at the next piece of this. Brooke found out she was pregnant late on the night of August 29th. Two days before, the Texas Heartbeat Act banned abortions once an ultrasound can detect cardiac activity. Around six weeks of pregnancy, it was the most restrictive abortion law to take effect in the United States in nearly 50 years. For many Texans who have needed abortions since September, the law has been a major inconvenience, forcing them to drive hundreds of miles and pay hundreds of dollars for legal procedure they, would, they could have had at home. But not everyone has been able to leave the state. Some people couldn't take time away from work or afford gas, while others faced with a long journey decided to stay pregnant. Nearly 10 months into the Texas law, they have started having babies they never planned to carry them. Oh, the horror! I love how they portray this. You'll look at the top. It says, uh, for Texans who needed abortions. Look, guys, I'm sorry to bust the Washington Post's bubble. Nobody needs an abortion. Nobody needs an abortion. When you're talking about issues of pregnancy where it involves life of the mother, you're talking about significantly less than even 1% of abortions. And even then, even in those situations, Normally, there's a way around it, or it's technically classified medically as an abortion, but the baby's actually already passed, and so there'd be no abortion law that would prevent them from getting that medical procedure. 
And so the whole uh, medical necessity for abortion is kind of a misnomer. And it's obvious that they're saying right there in the article, these people that are needing abortions, they don't need an abortion. They want an abortion. There is a different thing. It's like we have to talk to them like they're three-year-olds. There's a difference in a want and a need. So anyway, that's the case that they're going to try to make, but let's continue on. So they have started having babies they never planned to carry. Oh no, the horror. Babies are being born. Cats living with dogs. Real Old Testament stuff. Anyway. Texas offers a glimpse of what much of the country could face if the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade this summer. Remember that this was written about a day before Roe v. Wade dropped, or the, the Dobbs case dropped. As has been widely expected since the leaked draft opinion circulated last month. If the landmark precedent falls, roughly half the states in the country are expected to dramatically restrict abortion or ban it altogether, creating vast abortion deserts that will push many into parenthood. Okay, so here's the funny thing. You don't push people into parenthood. A person that is having sex opts into at least the possibility of parenthood. That's the way that it works. That would be like saying, uh, if you have a sandwich, then the state is forcing you into digestion. No, that's your body just working. Or it would be like if, um, you know, you turn, if you're a boy, you turn like, 12, 13, 14, and you start growing hair in weird places, and, you know, it's like, they're, it's forced puberty. It's not forced puberty. That's just the way your body works, you dingus. Like, it's because they think the state is all-powerful, and the state is God and can do things that natural occurrences of the human body, natural functions of the human are somehow the responsibility of the state, and if you are going through them, see, this is the problem. The Democrats' enemy is biology, not the state. They think that the state is the thing that solves biology because biology is a thing to be overcome because women shouldn't be having babies and women should be exactly the same as men and that abortion gives them that. That's what Ruth Bader Ginsburg actually argued is that uh, you know women are not really equal to men unless they can abort their children because men don't have to deal with pregnancy. Look, men and women are different. Deal with it. Like, we die earlier, okay? <laughs> there's a lot of, it's just a reality of life the government cannot make everything the same for men and women just because we happen to be biologically different there's differences there we, we tend to die more from heart attacks things like that so i'm sorry that's just biological reality but to the left biology and science and reality are all the enemy so that's something that the state is supposed to overcome let's go ahead and look at the next one Sometimes, Brooke imagined her life if she hadn't gotten pregnant, and if Texas hadn't banned abortion just days after she decided she wanted one, she would have been in school, rushing from class to her shift at Texas Roadhouse, eyes on a real estate license that would finally get her out of Corpus Christi. She pictured an apartment with Austin in Austin and enough money for a trip to Hawaii, where she would swim with the dolphins in water so clean that she could see her toes. Now, nothing wrong with any of that. Nothing wrong with wanting to be a real estate agent. Nothing wrong with working at Texas Roadhouse. Nothing wrong with being able to save up money for Hawaii and go swimming. Been there. Gorgeous. Probably the most gorgeous state in the union. But the idea that a one-time vacation and a career as a realtor is going to be more fulfilling than bringing a life into the world is a little bit of a misnomer. And you might say, well, maybe she didn't want to. If she didn't want the baby, she didn't have to keep the babies. 
And I'm not talking about abortion. If she did not care about those babies, she would have put them up for adoption. We know this. She saw the option of doing that, actually. Um, but the the fact that she didn't, that means that she actually does care for her children and she chose that. And so they're trying to paint this thing like that's vastly superior. Like going to Hawaii is a one-time trip is vastly superior to the life that she has now. And I don't pretend to know everything about her life. And I'm sure her life is very difficult in many ways. Everybody's life is. Um, I'm sure that there's a lot of things she has to deal with that I don't because I'm not a parent and I'm not a mom. But they they keep trying to portray this as like, you know, this Texas law just ruined her life. And I'm just sitting here like, really? That was the alternative? That That's fine, but it doesn't really seem like, you know, you're not exactly living the, the best life you possibly could. It's just bizarre how they're trying to portray this. So let's go ahead and look at the next one. Leaving Billy in her bedroom with the pregnancy test, Brooke grabbed her keys and drove to her best friend's house, where they sat on the bed and examined her options. She could always get an abortion, she told him. Then he reminded her of something she vaguely remembered seeing on Twitter. A new law was scheduled to take effect September 1st. Brooke had 48 hours. The abortion clinic in South Texas, two and a half hours from Corpus Christi, had no open slots for the next few days, with patients across the state racing to get into clinics before the law came down. When Brooke called, the woman at the end of the line offered the names and addresses of clinics in New Mexico, a 13-hour drive from Corpus Christi. You know, this is another thing that the left keeps talking about. They're scared to death. It's like nobody will be able to get an abortion. I mean, granted, I'm not glad that they can. I wish that that was not the case. But, it, you know, a 13-hour drive to get an abortion, um, there are people that have to drive 13 hours for, like, actual medical procedures that they need. So, I, you know, they act as though this is this major inconvenience and there will be no more abortions anymore. Believe me, I wish that were the case. It's not the case. In the meantime, the woman said Brooke could get an ultrasound somewhere nearby. If she was under six weeks, they could still see her. We're going to see how far along it is, Brooke texted her dad, Jeremy Alexander, later that night. See if an adoption, uh, see if an abortion is an option. What's the cutoff date, he asked. They just passed the law today, she responded in the early hours of September 1st, referring to the ban that had just taken effect. Where are the odds it'd be, I believe, at six weeks? Fingers crossed, her dad said. Brooke found a place that would perform an ultrasound on short notice, and she scheduled an appointment for 9 a.m. Okay, first of all, there's something deeply wrong and cynical with a person that is crossing his fingers and hoping against all hope that his pregnant daughter will have the ability to murder his grandchildren. Like, we find out later that this guy actually is a deadbeat dad, um, but, like, the fact that he's addicted to cocaine to me is like a minor issue compared to the fact that he's wanting his daughter to be able to kill her children. That's, that's a level of demonic cynicism. I can't even fathom. Uh, but anyway, so that's where we stand on that terrible, terrible father. All right. So a little later on in the same article, whenever a new client walks into the pregnancy center of coastal Benton, so these are the bad guys they're about to portray. These are the, uh, the, the crisis pregnancy center people. They are asked to fill out a form. After all the usual questions of name, date of birth, and marital status, uh, comes the one that most interests the staff. If you are pregnant, what are your intentions? From there, the team sorts each client into one of three groups. They are planning to have the baby, LTC, likely to carry. They're on the fence, AV, abortion vulnerable. And they're planning to get an abortion, AM, abortion-minded. 
the Pregnancy Center of Coastal Bend, which advertises itself as the number one source of abortion information in the region, is one of thousands, thousands of crisis pregnancy centers across the United States, anti-abortion organizations that are religiously affiliated. Oh, no! Religious... <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't hold it in. Religiously affiliated clinics trying to save children. How dare they? Anyway, when Brooke showed up uh, with her mom for an appointment, she had no idea she'd walked into a facility designed to dissuade people from getting abortions. She also didn't know how much significance her, fr uh, her form held for the staff. By signaling that she wanted an abortion, she became the first AM of the Texas Heartbeat Act. Yeah, so they're, they're going to try to portray these people as the villains. They're just a bunch of religious zealots. Look, religion may inform the reason that they're so against abortion and may want to try to save children, but you could say that about anything. Like, there are a ton of religiously based organizations centered around stopping child sex slavery. Are we supposed to believe that they're the bad guys just because they happen to be religiously affiliated? I don't know. The Washington Post actually might. I'm not sure. Um, but they, they do try to paint them in this negative light and paint them as though they're kind of, uh, you know, this creepy cult that is only there to prey on vulnerable women thinking about, you know, not killing their children. <laughs> it's the height of insanity, the way that these people think, the way that these people talk about children and the way that they talk about mothers as well. I, it, it really is disgusting. So let's go ahead and get to the next part. The advocate assigned to her case, Angie Arnholt, had been counseling abortion-minded clients at the pregnancy center for, for a year. While many of the center's volunteers signed up to only talk to LTCs to have happy conversations about babies, their clients couldn't wait to have Arnholt, a 61-year-old who wears a gold cross around her neck. Oh my gosh, can you believe the, <laughs> the audacity? Felt called to do what she would to help pregnant women make a good decision, she later told the Washington Post. Yeah, she sounds like a real monster. Back in the consultation room, Brooke told Arnholt all the reasons she wanted to get an abortion. She had just enrolled in real estate classes at a community college, which would be her first time back in the classroom since she dropped out of high school three years earlier at 15. She and Billy had been dating only three months. Sitting across from Brooke and her mom, Arnholt opened A Woman's Right to Know, an anti-abortion booklet distributed by the state of Texas, flipping a to a page titled Abortion Risk. The first risk listed was death. So you'll notice there that it's like the, the anti-abortion clinic and the anti-abortion uh, book. Now, they could just as easily say pro-life book or pro-life clinic. They don't do that because they think somehow saying that they're anti-abortion is some kind of like horrible slam on them. If they're anything like me, and I'm assuming they are, I'm pretty sure they take that as a compliment. So again, you can tell by the language, they're very much trying to cast these guys in some kind of like sinister light. But being anti-abortion is a good thing and they see it that way too. So like, you're really just, you're, you're trying to, you're throwing out an insult that doesn't hit the mark there. But anyway. As Brooke listened to Arnholt's warnings of depression, nausea, cramping, breast cancer, and infertility, she tried to stay calm, reminding herself that women get abortions all the time. Well, right, but that doesn't mean that there aren't side effects. Still, Brooke couldn't help fixating on some of the words Arnholt used. Vacuum suction, heavy bleeding, punctured uterus. Serious complications from abortion are rare. 
Abortion does not increase the risk of mental illness, breast cancer, or infertility, according to leading medical organizations. Now, see, you notice that they say leading medical organizations, not like a community of medical organizations. What they're doing there is they're citing specifically their medical organizations, the ones that they prefer. In other words, the ones that actually do show that these things are a legitimate concern for women that may be considering getting an abortion and when they get an abortion, these are some of the side effects of it. They don't, they just discard those because they disagree with their narrative. So when they say leading medical organizations, they're not even saying most medical organizations, they're saying specifically the ones we cherry picked to make this point in the article. So that being said, let's go on to the next point. Starting to panic, Brooke looked over at her mom. When she found that Brooke was pregnant, Terry Thomas told her daughter to get an abortion. When she while she was a devout Christian, going to church a few times a week and twice on Sundays. Okay, she might actually be a devout Christian, but that's not what makes you a devout Christian. She had her own views on this particular issue. Ah, there we go. Not a devout Christian. Thomas had her first kid at 20. She said, just as she was transferring out of community college with hopes of starting law school. If the timing had been different, she said she might have been a prosecutor. Instead, she hopped from one retail job to another, Bath and Body Works, to Walgreens, to Home Depot. Growing up, Brooke said she bounced back and forth between her mom's house and her dad's, depending on who was the more stable parent at the time. Her happiest years as a kid were spent with her dad. She said on a three-line street with a ping-pong table in the garage and a trampoline in the backyard. But then Brooke's dad started using cocaine. You know, which might explain why he's cheering for his grandchildren to be brutally murdered. Arnholt ushered Brooke into the ultrasound room, where Brooke undressed from the waist down and lay back on an examination table, looking up at a flat-screen TV. The ultrasound technician pressed the probe onto her stomach, slathered it with gel. Brooke wheeled up this, uh, wheeled the screen to show a fetus without a heartbeat. The technician gasped. It was twins, and they were 12 weeks along. Are you sure, Brooke said? Oh my God, oh my God. Thomas recalled saying as she jumped up and down, this is a miracle from the Lord. We are having these babies. So Brooke's mom takes one look at the ultrasound and is like, yep, that's a kid. I mean, that goes exactly back to what we were talking about in the earlier segment with our, our guest, Robin Blessing. The vast majority of women, you don't have to give them a, a lengthy scientific explanation. You don't have to have a medical degree. Literally, all you have to do is show them a picture of their kid. They're like, yep, that's a baby. I mean, at that point, it's just, it amazes me how often the left, that their argument is trying to make you say, what I see with my own eyes, hear with my own ears, what I can sense with my own senses must not be reality. They are the enemies of reality. Because the second you show people some reality, the vast majority of people, especially women that have that motherly instinct, they get it. It makes sense to them. You can call it a clump of cells all you want, which is a dumb argument because you're a clump of cells too. Every human is a clump of cells. But you can call it a clump of cells all you want. doesn't change the fact that it's still a baby and that when people see it, they understand it's a baby too. Even the vast majority of people like these two women that would consider themselves pro-choice. So let's get, again, Somehow this is supposed to be a pro-abortion article. <laughs> so let's go back to that. Brooke felt like she was floating above herself, watching a scene from below. Her mom was calling the twins my babies, 
promising Brooke she would take care of everything as the ultrasound technician told her how much she loved being a twin. If she really tried, Brooke thought, she could make it to New Mexico. Her older brother would probably lend her the money to get there, but she couldn't stop staring at the pulsing yellow line on the ultrasound screen. If her babies had heartbeats, as these women said that they did, was aborting them murder. Eventually, Arnholt turned to Brooke and asked whether she'd be keeping them. Brooke heard herself saying yes. So, goes back to exactly what I was saying just a minute ago. The second that she sees the babies, the second that she looks at them, the thought goes into her head, well, if they have heartbeats, isn't killing them wrong? Those aren't my hearts. I have a heart. Those two hearts are not my heart. She doesn't have three hearts. She doesn't have three bodies. Th those are somebody else's bodies. They understand it when you present them with the raw evidence. She gets it. This is a woman that was considering doing it, considering going through it. And the second she sees the baby, she's like, can't go through with it. It just amazes me. And if you want to know why the left does not want people to see ultrasounds of their babies, that's it right there. Because they know when they do, then that's the end of the ballgame for most people. That ends the argument right there. So let's go ahead and uh, look at the rest of this article here. After that, Brooke didn't go back to the pregnancy center. She said that the class, talking about the class that was at the pregnancy center, felt like a waste of time. Instead, she turned to Billy. Within a few weeks, Brooke and Billy had a plan. He would join the Air Force as soon as he graduated from high school. Brooke would wait for him to finish basic training, then follow him wherever he got assigned. Soon, they were debating baby names. Surrounded by their friends and family one afternoon in October, Brooke and Billy fired uh, general gender reveal cannons into Thomas's backyard, unleashing two giant puffs of pink smoke. Which again, that not only cuts against the left's ideas about whether or not a baby is actually a baby or not, but also cuts against their idea of uh, the fact that gender exists and is an actual thing. But anyway, let's continue. I'm so happy I met you, Billy, Brooke wrote in an Instagram post announcing her pregnancy. Starting a family with you is going to be one of the hardest things I'm ever going to experience. Yes, true, but I'm glad I get to do it with you. Okay, so even Brooke, the mom in the story, is saying, yes, it's going to be hard, but it's going to be a good thing that I get to do. <laughs> How do these people come up with this stuff? How do they think that this somehow makes their case? Brooke stated her real estate started her real estate classes in early November. Okay, so despite all of this going on, she still goes to her real estate school. And she loved everything about it, about going to school. When she showed up the first day in her favorite crop top and jeans, the cinder block building felt like an opportunity, she said. Most days she'd buy a frappuccino from the vending machine and sit down in the chair she claimed is her own, opening her textbook to a page she'd already covered in yellow highlighter. Brooke got an 83 on the final exam. The highest grade in the class. Okay, so she got actually got to uh, take some of the classes and did that, even though the whole point of this article is she doesn't get to do that now because of her babies. And uh, let's keep going. Looking at her daughters, Brooke struggled to articulate her feelings on abortion. On one hand, she said she absolutely believed that a woman should have the right to choose what's best for their own lives. On the other, she knew that without the Texas law, her babies might not be here. 
So in other words, she can't imagine losing her babies. And because of that, she actually, in a roundabout way, is grateful for the Texas law for taking that option off the table for her. Again, somehow this is supposed to be a pro-abortion article, and I just don't get it. Anyway, it continues on. Who's to say what I would have done if the law wasn't into effect, she said. I don't want to think about it. Well, yeah, I bet you don't. Um, I wouldn't either. I'm glad that you didn't have that option. Brooke considered all that she had lost. Long nights at the skate park, trips to the mall, dropping a $30 on a crab dinner just because she felt like it. It really, uh, I really just can't be free, she said. I guess that really sums it up. That's a big thing that I really miss, she said silently for a while. Olivia's hand wrapped around her finger. It's really scary thinking that I wouldn't have them, she said. There was only one way that she could make sense of it, she said. Losing them now as fully formed human beings would be different from losing them back then. Okay, now this is where my expertise and somebody who used to write newspaper stories is going to come in handy. I can't prove this. This is just speculation on my part, but I have a suspicion here. You notice how at the end, they don't actually quote her, but they paraphrase her. I could be wrong, but based on everything leading up to that sentence, it seems as though Brooke has turned a new leaf on her opinion on the abortion things. It seems that she hasn't quite left her position of being pro-choice, at least in some manner. But it seems like all the stuff that she believed about taking a baby's life beforehand is pretty much gone at this point. And the fact that it says that losing them now as fully formed human beings would be different from losing them back then, I would be willing to bet a lot of money that the actual quote says something kind of along those lines, but that the author reworded it in such a way to make it sound more like she's more pro-choice than she actually is. Could be wrong. Maybe it says something very akin to that and they just edited for time. But I don't think I'm wrong on that one. And one thing that I, I would like to bring to your attention looking at that. She says, it's really scary to think that I wouldn't have them. Everything I see in this article indicates to me that this woman who had every intention of killing her own children in the womb when she didn't think of them as children the second that she realized they were, did a complete 180 on it and is actually thankful for the Texas law, a law that she probably would have been against if you would ask her her opinion on it before she actually got pregnant. And see, this is the thing that they don't like to talk about. I know plenty of women, and I have one that I'm actually very close to in my family, that actually claims to be somebody that is pro-choice. And I think part of that comes from they feel like they're bad women and they're, they're betraying women if they don't say that but their actions say the exact opposite. I won't go into the details of one story in particular that I'm thinking about, but there was a situation that would have been what most people would consider a textbook case of why you should have an abortion. It had, again, I'm not going to go into the details, but the parents were underage and not married. And there were all kinds of, re like, like basically every reason you can have to not want a baby other than actual medical concern was in that story. Uh, except for rape. Rape was also not concerned. So I guess the, the like big three that people always bring up is the reason. Outside of those reasons, if you're talking about an abortion for convenience, every single part of that formula was there present in that story. And the woman who claims that she's pro-choice refused to go through with it. And so it's just like the, they, they know. Most of them know. The instinct is there, it kicks in, 
they have been taught their whole life or they've they've grown up it's just like people that are stuck in a religion that doesn't make any sense and they don't really understand the religion but it's what they grew up believing it's the same thing they have been taught their whole life that they're bad women if they're not pro-choice but when it comes time to actually make the decision even when everything around them would say this is not the right way to handle it you need to go ahead and, and abort this child they know that it's wrong their actions speak louder than their words and this young lady not only went through and had her twins, but actually kept them and stayed with her babies because she cares about them. She loves them. That's part of God making her who she is. And she seems like a perfectly fine and delightful young lady, by the way. I'm not trying to say this to say that the uh, the family's horrible. I do think the dad might be a little horrible. I mean, he's a coke addict and he's rooting for his kids to be his grandkids to be murdered. So I give him a little less leeway, and maybe that's because I'm a man and I'm harder on men. But regardless. It seems to me that a lot of the people involved in this story are actually really good people. And even if they do consider themselves quote-unquote pro-choice, their actions don't say that. And the story doesn't say that. It says that they actually believe the opposite and that their lives are better for it. A perfect example. It's talking about her not being able to go back to class, and that's unfortunate. But if that's what she decided, wouldn't that indicate that her decisions would sh say that she likes her life now better than she would have if she was in real estate school. And her now husband, instead of, again, I'm, I'm just being critical because I would have been critical of me at that age too. Uh, so I'm not just saying that he's a horrible human being or anything like that. I, I actually admire him for stepping up and being a dad. But this caused a kid that bums around all day at a skate park to actually grow up and have some responsibility. And now he's going to the United States Air Force. He's becoming a contributing member of society because his children made him better. And it sounds like the mom has grown quite a bit too. And her children have made her better as well. And this is why I say that like everything in this story is ridiculously pro-life. Like I couldn't have pinned a better story than this. If I had tried to, if I was just making it up and could make up the details as I went along, I couldn't make up a story better than this. And so it really does just speak to the fact that the people at the Washington Post are so blinded by their own ideology, they don't see that this obliterates the case for abortion. So we'll go to the next one here. So, by the way, I love this picture. This is a picture of the grandparents. This is the, uh, the father's dad and mom. Anyway, it goes on. <clears throat> to explain the center's work, Pinson told a story about a girl who showed up with her mom. Remember, this is the, uh, the crisis pregnancy center lady who showed up with her mom on the morning of the Heartbeat Act took effect, asking for an abortion. The mother and daughter were so furious with us, Pinson said, so angry, but as soon as they saw the ultrasound, she said everything changed. The moment that we put the wand on her sweet belly and those two babies popped up, it absolutely melted them. Yes, because again, they were confronted with reality. This is what the left hates. They hate it when people are confronted with reality, because once you are confronted with reality, you come around to the right's position. Once they saw the truth, the truth set them free from their bad ideology. So that's where we are right now. And this is the final part of it. This is kind of the conclusion of the story. Standing with Billy in front of the Justice of the Peace, Brooke told herself that one day they would have their own love story moment. She would walk down the aisle in a wedding gown. Their friends and family would cry and cheer and Billy, as she and Billy publicly declared how much they meant to each other. I, Brooke Alexander, take the Billy High to beat my wedded husband, she repeated. If it wasn't for the Texas law, 
Brooke knew she might not be standing here. She probably would be studying for her next exam while Billy mastered some new trick on the quarter pipe. She'd like to think that she'd still be together, spending their money on movie tickets and Whataburger instead of diapers and baby wipes. She told herself that that alternate life didn't matter anymore. Exactly right. She had two babies she loved more than anything else in the world. I do, she said, with tears in her eyes. Brooke pulled out her phone once they finished the ceremony. One hour, 15 minutes, time to grab some lunch and head home. The babies would be hungry. Again, I, I just don't see how they don't see it. It, it, is, it is astounding to me because that's the end of that story. This couple went from being two irresponsible teenagers to two flourishing members of society. Do they have hardships? Sure. Is their life perfect? No. Are there a lot of sacrifices they have to make for their kids? Absolutely. That's what made them better. That's the irony of this whole thing. The very thing that the Washington Post is trying to castigate and saying, this is terrible and this is horrible. Look at all how, woe is them, how horrible their life is now. That's exactly the thing that makes them better people now. That's what hardship does to people. You know, everybody has different things in their life that has that effect on them. For me, it was cancer. I became a better person after cancer. Yeah, it sucked at the time. That doesn't change the fact that going through an experience like that makes you better. And this is true of most people. Your children tend to make you more responsible because now you have to care about another human life. You realize that your life isn't all about you. And I'm saying this is a childless bachelor. I'm just saying this is an outsider looking in and even I have figured this out. And so the, the idea that all these sacrifices you make for your kids, that's the point of parenthood in the first place. The whole reason that God created us in a system where we have to love one another to procreate. And then through that procreation, we have more love and are better able to understand God's relationship with us. That's the point of families in the first place, guys. That was the point is to make us more like God, to make us more righteous like he is. And that's exactly what this couple experienced. Now the, the man is responsible. He's and, and props to him because there's a lot of guys that would have, you know, once that happened, hauled butt out of town. But this guy is taking responsibility. He has a family now. He's taking care of them. He's not spending time, you know, just goofing off and doing whatever he wants. He's actually contributing to society. His, he has a beautiful wife. He has two beautiful little girls. I mean, like everything about this story is good. The fact that the Texas law was in effect made the story better. This wouldn't be a story at all, and it certainly wouldn't be a very good story if that law hadn't taken effect and if she hadn't gone to that pregnancy center and seen those babies and that hadn't saved their lives. It is just astounding to me that these people don't see how this completely undermines everything that they've been telling people. But I do want to mention one last thing before we go on this. The Human Defense Fund, which is a pro-life organization, has actually put together a way to help this couple. They saw a need and they said, you know what? They probably are in need of some things. They need some help. So cool. We're going to do that. And there is a link to where you can go. There's an Amazon registry that you can go to. So you don't have to donate money. Uh, you don't have to like go to GoFundMe or anything like that. We're not going to get shut down by them or anything. You can go to this Amazon registry and they have gifts as low as like $15, $20. And you can buy them 
and it will send it directly to this couple's house. And I very much recommend that you do that. They seem to be a great couple. Uh, they seem to have two little girls that they really care about and love, and, and I wish them the best and pray for them. And here's the thing. It was like I was saying earlier in the show. If we want the government to do less, we have to do more. If we want bills like Texas to stand and we want states to outlaw abortion, then other states that haven't done that need to see that there are resources and there are people that are available to people caught in situations exactly like this. I want to protect babies just as much as you do. Because if you've watched this much of the show, you probably have already picked up on that. You probably are a pro-life person yourself. And that's great. Glad to have you here. But that also means we have a responsibility to try to take care of people. I'm not saying that us not doing so makes it right. That's not true either. Like, that's a stupid argument and always has been. But whether or not it is, it is also right to try to help people that need it. And so whether it's this couple, and, and the link is in the description below if you want to donate to them, but if you know a couple like this, maybe buy them a month's supply of diapers or, or even just a pack of diapers. Maybe buy them some baby clothes. Maybe, maybe get them some baby toys. Like Help them out when you can. And make sure that we are alert and aware of what is going on around us so that we can help people like this too. Because it's not enough to prevent death. It's also incumbent upon us as followers of Jesus Christ to improve life. And that's really what we can do here. All right, so we're going to go ahead and go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Chaplain's report today does come from the book of Matthew. So I know that you're going to uh, probably be raising a math, uh, raising an eyebrow when you found out that this passage is coming from Matthew, especially considering this is the abortion special, but it actually does tie back in. So just follow me on here. Uh, follow me with this. I know that it doesn't directly pertain to abortion, but I think you're going to like the message that comes out of it. So let's go ahead and look at Matthew 14 verses 22 through 33 which states, immediately afterward, he, talking about Jesus, compelled the disciples to get into the boat and to go ahead of him to the other side, while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray, and when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter responded and said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. 
But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And when he began to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out with his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are truly the Son of God. Now, what does all that have to do with abortion? Well, a few things. First of all, I want you to focus on a phrase that occurs in that story where the disciples are freaking out because they're seeing a guy walking on the water in the middle of a storm, which I'm sure was a sight to behold. I've always wondered, like, did Jesus sort of like stay where he was on the water or like when a wave came, did his did he follow with the wave? I just out of curiosity, I'm a, I'm a guy. I think about weird things like that. But anyway, so that's where Jesus is outside the boat walking on the water. And he says, do not be afraid. You know where else that passage occurs? It's the first thing that the angel says to Mary when he tells her that she's going to have a baby. Do not be afraid. You see, God didn't want Mary to be afraid. And in the same way, he didn't want Peter to be afraid. So the same announcement that was made at the before the birth of Jesus is also made at this point. And that's one of the core messages of the gospel. Jesus is saying, I'm here. There's no reason for you to be afraid if I'm here. And now we know that he's with us always, even into the ends of the earth. And so we don't need to be afraid. I think that it's very important that when we encounter women that are in situations that might compel them to seek out an abortion, that they're freaking out, their family's freaking out, that the first thing that we do is say to them, don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. Reassure them, comfort them, let them know that they're going to be taken care of and that everything's going to be all right. And if the moment is right and they are somebody that believes, remind them. You don't have to be afraid because Jesus is here. Everything's going to be all right. Yes, there's a storm. Yes, it's bad. Yes, there are things about it that are going to be difficult. But you don't have to be afraid. I want you to know something else, too. Peter, who was undoubtedly the bravest of the twelve, at least in this moment, maybe he wasn't at other times, but he certainly was here. He trusts Jesus, and he trusts him enough to ask him to come out on the water so that he could come to him. And he does. And he hops out of the boat. But after he does that, he looks around, he sees the storm, he sees everything at life that's coming at him. And he starts freaking out, and he falls, and is now swimming like a regular person. He took his eyes off Jesus, and that caused him to not be able to handle the storm. And now he's now he's stuck. Now he's got a problem coming on. And right after that, what he does is he says, Lord, save me. So if you are a pregnant person or somebody that is connected to a pregnant person, maybe you're the father of the, the daughter, maybe you're the father of the baby, you know, the, the girl's boyfriend or husband, whatever it may be, if you're connected to this in any way, maybe mistakes were made. Maybe like Peter, somebody took their eye off Jesus and it caused a catastrophe. It caused a problem. It caused, The storm is now coming for you. 
And now the storm is your problem because as long as you kept your eyes on Jesus, it wasn't bothering you. But now that you didn't, now there's going to be some earthly consequences to that decision. That might describe you. But what should your immediate reaction be? It should be the same as Peter's. Lord, save me. There was no delay. There was no, maybe I'm a strong enough swimmer. And Peter was a fisherman. Believe me, the guy knew how to swim. <laughs> but evidently this was too much for him and he realized that. So his immediate reaction was, Lord, save me. He didn't rely on himself. He didn't think that he had to go it alone. And he didn't cry out to the other disciples because he realized the person in the room, figuratively speaking, of course, the person in the room, the person that is nearest him, that can lend him a hand and that would be best suited to do that is not the guys in the boat. It's Jesus. And so he was wise to call upon the Lord to save him. And what else do you notice? about what happened there. Immediately, the word immediately is actually in the verse. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and helped him. There was no, uh, Peter, maybe you ought to swim there for a second. Think about what you did. Maybe you need to take a few mouthfuls of salt water and, and see how that feels. You shouldn't have taken your eyes off me. There was none of that. Kind of like I said earlier in the program, there's a lot of Christians that I, I think on some level might mean well, but when they point out that mistakes were made or that, you know, these people that are engaged in these pregnancies, they shouldn't be having sex out of marriage. Okay, that's true. But if you're already pregnant, that advice doesn't help much. I mean, is it, is it true? Yes. Is it good advice? Generally speaking, yes. Does a woman that is freaked out about becoming a mother need to hear that? No. Because, first of all, she probably knows that at that point. I would hope so. But second, whether she does or not, that's not helpful at that moment. Might be helpful at another time, but it's certainly not helpful there. What that person needs is someone to reach out a hand and help them up. That's what is needed at that moment. Did, did Jesus say, go back in the past and make it to where you... No. Jesus used a lot of things as teaching moments. But you'll notice that whenever he's confronted with somebody that needs help immediately, that is, is in crisis and needs him there, what does he do? He helps. Is that still a teaching moment? Sure. But if we are Christians, if we are supposed to be Jesus's representatives here on earth, then what we need to do is reach out a hand and help them and offer that olive branch to them. There will be time for sorting out where the mistakes were made later. And that does need to happen at some point. I'm not saying that you gloss over that. But in that moment, that's not what the person needs. You reach out, you grab them, you help them get back on their feet, you help them get back in the boat. The storm, you know, will subside at some point. In their situation, it was immediately. And then maybe it's time to start having a conversation about some of those mistakes that were made and how we can improve. But you also notice what happens directly after that. When they get back in the boat, having seen all of that, they worship him and say, he is the son of God. See, after seeing that, they got who he was. Did Jesus in that moment take a, a, a moment to, while they're in the storm, tell them that he was the son of God? No. I mean, he's told them that before, but his actions showed who he was. 
And when we do this to somebody that is hurting, that needs our help, those people will praise God as a result of that too. Maybe not every time, and maybe not immediately, but that is the inevitable conclusion at some point. And so I think we need to be a little bit more forgiving and a little more Christ-like and have a little more mercy rather than sacrifice when it comes to some of these issues. I'm not saying you ignore it. I'm not saying that we gloss over it or pretend like sin didn't happen or mistakes didn't happen. I'm just saying that we need to recognize there's a better time and place to handle those questions than when the person is drowning. When the person is drowning, you help them first, you start evaluating how they can avoid that situation in the future a little bit later once they've recovered some. And so as Christians, I just really want us to be aware of that. You know, Jesus was never afraid to call out sin. We have no indication he was very bold in, in every time that he called out somebody's sin. But do you notice that that was usually not the first salvo? That there were things that preceded that? Like, when he's talking to Peter here, he just kind of lets the lesson teach itself. He doesn't tell Peter he screwed up. I mean, he does mention that he has little faith and that he wants him to improve, but he doesn't go into a long lesson on all of that right then. And he even only does that after he's already helped him. Immediately, he reaches his hand out to help him and then starts giving him a lecture on that. And it wasn't even that long, to be honest. But on top of that, if we look at, for example, the woman of the well. He had a conversation with her first. He talked about her situation first. Then he called out her sin. The woman that's caught in adultery. Now, I know that there's some debate about whether this story actually belongs in the scripture or not. I tend to think that it was probably tradition that was added later, so it doesn't belong in the gospel, but it probably is a real story about Jesus. In that story, you remember what happens is it's very Jesus-esque. He saves the woman first and then tells her to stop sinning. And so that's very much in keeping whether it's a true story or not. It's very much in keeping with Jesus' characteristics and personality. That's part of the reason that I think it actually probably is true, even though it doesn't belong in the scripture. We could look at countless other stories where Jesus heals, helps, saves first, and then starts talking about where we can do some improvement. And when I say save, I mean save from physical danger like he did Peter here. The salvation does have to come after repentance and confession and so on. But in all of that, in the midst of everything that was happening there. Jesus only called out sin first when it was people that already knew better, the Pharisees, the lawyers, that kind of thing. When it was people that needed help, help was always the first thing that he did. And if we want to be followers of Christ, we have to adopt that same attitude. Stay the course, friends. Thank you for listening to the Tactics Podcast. Tactics is a production of Not Ashamed Media. Any opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of our business partners or sponsors. Graphics by Jessica Dawson. Video production by Jackson Dean. Broadcast studio provided by Faulkner University. Location studio provided by Delreda Church of Christ. Copyright 2021.